Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast, and indeed the past 179 episodes of it, exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to the final ever episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. And usually at this point, I'd have written notes, a script, an idea of how to introduce my guests. And I've spent the past few weeks since this interview happened, trying to think about what I'd say right now on this final episode, and I still haven't managed to crack it. And I'm out of time. I've got to upload this right now. So I'm just going to go off the cuff, off the top of my head, okay? When we started this little adventure back in December 2020, an idea that had been bubbling away for a while and all the preparation, the research, the guests being set up during those lockdown periods of that global pandemic, I'm not entirely sure I thought we'd ever arrive here, really. This was meant to be a daft little project, chatting to some fans. And it's kind of exploded into something completely different. And that's down to you, the people listening, so thank you. It's down to our incredible guests, so many brilliant people who have joined us on the podcast, the story, so far. So thank you to you as well. And it's down to one man, his music, the connections that exist within the brilliant bands that he's created and been a part of, the Jam, the Star Council, and all those iterations of those incredible solo lineups as well. It's impossible to put into words what his music has meant to me over the past 30 plus years since my discovery in 1992. And back then, I was, what, 16, 17 years old? A dream to become a radio presenter. That's all I ever did. Listen to the radio, listen to music, listen to these DJs chatting, playing their favourite songs. And that's what I wanted to do. And when I got to do that, the bit that I loved the most was, yes, playing the records, but it was interviewing. It was having conversations with my guests. And they didn't have to be famous. They just had to have a story to tell. And I've always loved that. And the funny thing is, I think when I was doing those radio shows, I'm not entirely sure I really understood what an honour and a privilege that was. It's an incredible position to be in, to be able to talk, to have conversations, to interview people, and in that case, play music as well, and have people listen, have people enjoy what you do. 
And I kind of get that sense from talking to my next guest. I don't know why I keep saying my next guest. You know who it is, right? Well, I get that sense from talking to Paul Weller as well, that he also feels that way. This incredible privilege of his life, of what he's been able to do, and the fact that people have enjoyed it and been along for the ride. People like you listening to this podcast today. And if you'll indulge me for a second, whilst I'm dishing out thank yous, let me give a massive one to my family, to my brilliant wife, Kate, to my fabulous boys, Henry and Freddie, for letting me do this thing. Let me get away with this over the past three years. Honestly, thank you so much. And I hope what it's achieved makes you proud as well. So look, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Suffice to say, but when it comes to Paul Weller, I'm a big fan, big fan. This was recorded on the 20th of November, 2023. I turned up at Blackburn Studio in the morning to be greeted by a cup of tea from Charles Reese, a lovely big hug from Mooney. I look across to that invention from Charles, the calendar. I don't know if you remember that. And there's my name in a little square on the board. Dan Jennings, Paul Weller, and this, what I consider to be a very special conversation. And much like Paul, I'm doing this for myself, but hey, look, if you enjoy it as well, then that's fabulous too. I think you're going to discover some new things. So look, for the final time, desperately seeking Paul, let's get into it. Paul Weller, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, mate. Lovely to see you. Thank you for having me on your show. (laughs) It's been a while. Yeah, that's been a while, yeah. Bit of a journey. Thank you for inviting me here to Black Barn. This feels like I'm kind of entering your front room in a way. This feels like home, right? Yeah, it is, yeah, definitely. What's special about it? Look around you, you know what I mean? Well, it's just become not only where we work and where we create music, but it also feels a bit like you just said, a bit like home as well, you know? So it's kind of like our HQ as well, you know? But um, what's special about it? Well... On a nice day, which it isn't today, but on a nice day, it's just wonderful to be down there amongst all this greenery and uh, space, you know. So just to get out of London, really, I suppose that's part of it. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's about the work as well. And it's just, Charlie's great, our engineer. We just get a great sound there. And it's just always got a good vibe here. Everyone everyone I've ever spoken to, whenever worked with here, I've always loved it and loved the vibe here. And that's kind of unexplainable sometimes, whatever that is. But it just feels comfortable here. And does it feel like a sanctuary away from the chaos of life in London well, and city life in this way? It's like it, it's far enough away from London and yet it's only an hour down the road. And I like that as well, you know. I like the fact that I'm not too far from home as well. If you were building a studio, it's not the type of studio that you would build from scratch in that way. Do you know what I mean? It's not clinical, what, yeah. you, what I would expect from a recording studio in that sense. Yeah, that is true, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, this was built in, I think, the 80s. Think anyway, Charlie would have a better idea. So it was still kind of old school enough to be a proper studio, if you know what I mean, with a live room. That's what mm. I'm saying, really, as opposed to a lot of places now that are just for mixing or not necessarily for a band, you know. And there's so few of those studios left. A lot of them are closed down, especially the ones in London. There's so few there now. So it's just nice to have this live space. And I think that surprises a lot of people, not me and my band, but other people who've come here to work. That it's like, oh, well, this is how a studio can be as well, you know, mm. because they're used to those smaller places now. They're smaller, sort of more like mixed studios where people record these days. So I think that's probably quite a rare thing these days to have an actual live room, you know. I guess also that luxury of it being yours is, again, 
not a common. I mean, people have their tiny home studios and things, but that's not yeah. this. So does that feel like a like a blessing, like a real luxury to have this as, as your own thing where... I have to pinch myself every time I'm down here, man, you know, because I'd never in my wildest dreams thought we'd get somewhere like this, you know. It's an absolute luxury, yeah, because you're not watching the clock. Studios, what are left of them are really expensive. So you're always watching the clock, see how, what, how many hours are we going over. Whereas here, we don't have that. And so we can... When I say work at our own pace, we definitely get things done and we work pretty quickly. But knowing that you haven't got that added pressure of like, we've got to finish by a certain time or we've only got three days to do this. So I can work on stuff and then we can take a week off or two weeks off or whatever to have a chance to sit and think about it and then come back to it. That's a real luxury in itself, I think. And when you come here, is it with the intention of creating something? You don't pop in for a cup of tea and a chat. Come in to do business sometimes, yeah. you know, just have to sort certain things out. But generally, if I'm recording here, then it's, we work really hard, yeah. Charles said that. He said he's never known anybody who works so hard to keep creating new material, but quickly, the speed of which you work. Mm. You're not hanging around on this stuff. Has that always been the case? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. Because I have been on other sessions where it's been like watching paint dry, man, which is so slow and uh, for various reasons, really. So I get bored really quickly, you know, so I need to just push it along. Let's, you know, let's hurry up and do this. But like I said, but having that knowledge that you can always come back to it as well. So you take a week away from something, right? You work really quickly. We try and do as much as we can in a short space of time, then come back and look at it review it and then come back to it again. And that is a real luxury, I think, you know, and also I, very rarely these days am I working to a deadline. And if there is a deadline, it's only one that I'm setting myself. So it's, I don't have a record company breathing down my neck saying we need the album now or, and days are long gone, I think. That's you, a good position to be in, you know, because yeah. you, you want to get this thing finished and it's not like you're not going to finish it. We definitely are going to finish it and we'll have a kind of set time we're going to do it. But it isn't a strict deadline, you know. You seem to be setting yourself pretty ambitious deadlines, though, because the you know if you think about the, the amount of albums, as a fan, we're blessed. The amount of material that's coming out of Black Barn from you, what's driving that? What is it that makes you want to keep creating new material, keep pushing forward? Mm, well, probably a variety of reasons, really. I mean, I think the main one is that that's what I think musicians are supposed to be doing. It's like, well, isn't that part of the sort of job description that you go on tour and you make records? You know, and that's probably like an old school way of looking at it, but that's still what I think that's what it's about. That is all that it's about, at least making, writing and creating new records and new music and then going out and touring it, which is like an old school sort of way of looking at it. But I think it still applies, you know, and I think there's something to be said for uh, consistency. Just keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it and just putting it out, you know, as opposed to a lot of younger artists who will make an album and they're not making another one for five, seven years or something. I don't understand that. I often think, what do you do in those in-between years? What do they do? You can't be out on tour for five or seven years, touring the same record, surely. So I don't understand what they do in in between time. I mean, you know, I love my work. I'm very lucky, blessed that I've made a good living and make a living from something I love doing. I probably would do for nothing, really, if it came to it. And that's a very blessed and fortunate position to be in, you know. So I'm kind of very aware of that as well. But I think that's something you have to keep feeding and you have to keep working at and keep chipping away at, you know. And it's not just about the end products for you. The creative process that you go through is enjoyable yeah. as well. That's probably more enjoyable, okay. yeah. The creation of something. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think that thing of like getting here in the morning or whatever, and whatever time you start, and uh, having like a very, very, very loose, raw idea 
and then it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And all of a sudden, within a matter of hours, or by the afternoon or by the evening, all of a sudden you play it back and it's like, ah, okay, yeah, there's a, a track's forming there, you know, a song's forming there. I always think that's fascinating that. I just think it's something magical about that because uh, all of a sudden it sort of turns and it changes and all of a sudden you've got something very real and something's come alive and you don't really kind of know how that happened. It's just sort of flipped and it's just uh, all of a sudden there's something really, mm. something there. And you can't explain that magic and how that happens. Well, I don't know if you, you want to, to really, yeah. you know what I mean? Because it would spoil it, I think. And I don't know if there is any way of explaining it either, really. And I think it's the same with gigs, you know, because you can play five gigs in a row, you know, and then they'll all be good, but one will be great. And you don't know why that is. No idea why. Something just clicks, something's in the room, whatever. You become one with the audience, they become one with you. You can't plan for that and you can't really explain how that happens. At the time of recording, we've just announced lots of dates for gigs next year. And it yeah. starts off like straight in January, we're into Japan, we're down under, we've got some yeah. UK dates coming in. You never get tired of going out on the road and playing these songs to, to audiences across the globe. I don't get tired of that. I don't get tired of playing music to people because that is just a brilliant, fantastic, fascinating thing, I think. The only thing that I do tire of is the traveling and hanging about and all that. But I know that's just obviously part and parcel of it. That's what you have to go through to get to the good bit, you know. Sometimes when I'm sitting in a hotel room or on a plane or a bus or whatever, and I think, what am I doing? You know, when I, I could be at home watching TV with my daughter or whatever. And then you get on stage and then for them to two hours or whatever it is, you just know there's nowhere else you should be. You've got you know, exactly where you should be. So it's always that weird uh, dichotomy, whatever you want to call it. And... uh the little magical two hour bit at the end of the day is what you're, is really what you want. And that's what you're after. That's what you're looking for. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Cause you're almost like waiting around all day for that yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> from the time you wake up, well, for me anyway, from the time I wake up and the anxiety and the nerves and the adrenaline and all that stuff, you know. You still get that, even though, yeah, I mean, yeah. thousands and thousands of gigs later, that still yeah. happens. Yeah. As bad as it used to be? Uh, not as bad as it used to be, but still pretty bad. Yeah. The hour or so before I go on stage is normally pretty bad. I feel. What's going through your head? I don't know. I mean, all the things that could go wrong, which which they can't really, you know. But I've always been like that. I mean, it used to be way worse. I mean, sometimes I used to be physically sick, you know, before I go on and all that sort of thing. So I'm not that bad now. But the anxiety, I suppose, just because every every night you've got to go out and uh, prove yourself again. You've got all those people who paid their money and come to see something special. And obviously you want to deliver that. But there's still that little voice in there saying, you know, are you going to be able to do it? Can you still do it? And, uh, and all those little sort of uh, insecurities come out of that when you're nervous, I think. John Wilson, very good friend of yours, the journalist broadcaster has been on the podcast. He talks about the fact from his angle, you're only as good as your last interview. So he always puts as much effort into the prep yeah. and the research and what he's, what he's coming. I guess from your point of view, you're only as good as your last record. You're yeah, only yeah. as good as your last gig. Absolutely. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And just look, often when people say to me, well, what's your favorite gig? It's like, well, last night. Mainly because I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> but whatever's fresh in your head, you know. But I think, uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. It, whether it's true or not, it's not a bad thing to have in life, really, to think, well, whatever you've done previous in the last 40 years or last 40 minutes, whatever, doesn't matter. It's just what you're going to do tonight. That's where you're going to prove yourself and see what you can do with this thing. And that's a good thing, I think. You know, I mean, it, it's an uncomfortable thing at the time. Like I said, because of nerves and anxiety and all that stuff. But where would you be without that? 
if you never had those worries or those fears or those nerves before you went on, I don't know what that would be like. I think you've got to have a little bit of that just to give you that drive and that edge. Right. Last night was great, but this make it even better tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, yeah, there's a danger where you can become complacent without that. I mean, I know a few of my friends who I won't name names, but who are musicians and. Oh, please do. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but they never get nervous. And I just think, yeah, you, you know, you're nervous. I've seen them before they go on. And they're like, mm-hmm. and I just think that's so fucking weird. You know, yeah. I just, I don't understand that. I talked to you, your mum was on the podcast. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and she talks about you as this 14, 15 year old you'd have been when you first got your first guitar, yeah? Yeah, before that, but yeah, but yeah, from before when I started taking it more seriously, yeah. Me and Steve Brooks, we had a few lessons with this guy called Smithy, who used to work in a music shop in Woking, and we had a couple of lessons with him. We didn't last long, man, because it was so tedious, you know, he was trying to teach us how to read the dots and dashes, the music. Which we, we just couldn't get our heads around at all. You know, we just wanted to be able to play a song. But the thing we got from that was, uh, was the little chord boxes, the little boxes that are on sheet music that show you how to play the chords. See, okay. Yeah. G. And, but by the time we had sort of like, we learned three or four chords, we kind of just went off and did our own thing and started writing songs together, you know, daft little Beatle knockoffs. And, um, and we just developed like that, you know, and then we'd both find a different chord. Like Brooksy came back, it's, it's like, I've just found this chord, it's a D major seventh, right? Which would mean nothing to some listeners, but anyway. And we were like, oh, that's the greatest chord we've ever heard, right? <laughs> and then so we'd write like, you know, five songs of this chord in it. And that's just how it went. And we just learnt more and more chords. And, it, you know, that's I suppose most people do, I guess. Yeah. She talks about this really shy young boy, though, who yeah. uh, she couldn't imagine you getting on the I stage. Know, but I, never. Yeah. I remember telling my mum, Sky, I'm going to play next week. She's like, really? I'm going to stand up there and do it, you know? And it was only a Wednesday night at the Woking Workingman's Club, you know, just me and Steve, two little kids and, uh, six or seven old geezers with their pints and just, you know, <laughs> totally disinterested. But it was our introduction to it or our induction to it. But yeah, I couldn't even imagine either. I don't know. It's a weird thing, isn't it? And I think there's quite a lot of, um, artists, performers, I don't know, whatever you want to call them. They are very shy, really. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. But then when you get on their boards, you're just, you just change your personality, change your thoughts, change and, um, why that is, I don't know. And I don't feel that you're playing a character when you're on stage. This is you. This is the authentic you up there. Just another side of me. That's all. Yeah. So you find a love for that live performance immediately or is it, was it like that? This is a rush. Let's do more of this. Oh, we just loved it, man. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't, that was all we wanted to do. We just, you know, we, I hated school. We, Steve hated school. We hated, uh, any kind of, um, system at all. Really. We were trying to look at a way. So how can we live outside of all this bullshit? And we thought music was the way out. You know, we were both music fans, obviously, but we thought that's what could a poor boy do? You know, all that sort of thing in it. And it's, uh, it was a way out. We thought as well. And it, and it was luckily. And the discovery of music itself, in the, I mean, you growing up, your household was just full of music from the sounds of things as a kid. Yeah, because my mum was young, you know, my dad wasn't sort of a big music fan, you know, he only liked, liked Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole, really. But, um, <laughs> but my mum was very young. She was only 18 when she had me, so she was still really young. So we got, I've had the radio on, or we used to have one of them old radiograms, you know, we could stack all the singles up. She had a few singles that she bought. They were quite expensive at the time in, in relative terms anyway. They were kind of still a bit of a luxury item in a sense, but I would also go and borrow some records off, uh, of my mum's friends 
love to give them back to them and all that. But anyway, so it was that sort of thing. And then I was thinking about this the other day, actually. We were talking about the Beatles because of the, Be- the new Beatles single. And I was saying to someone, but I've been a fan since I was six years old, right? She's the age of my daughter is now, my youngest. 1963, right? When they're on the Royal Command performance, whatever. And I've been a fan since the time I'm six to uh, 66 next year anyway. So it's a mad, isn't it? I mean, they've kind of been such a massive part of my life as much as my parents are or my sister or we like direct family. And that was really, even at that sort of very, very young age, that's all I really thought about. Not necessarily from that age I wanted to be a musician, but I just love music and I just love the whole culture that went with music, especially at that time. You know, they were totally entwined, I thought, really clothes and hair and attitudes and all of it was revolutionary, really, especially after coming out of such a bleak sort of post-war time, you know. Because it's funny to think, I was only born like 13 years after the end of the Second World War, mm. really. It's fucking bonkers, you know, in some ways. So I thought there was, although this cliche has been used many times, but that whole thing of like, you know, all of a sudden the world, or England anyway, seemed to turn it into sort of, it become more colourful from the start of the 60s, although people say that started in the 50s. I kind of copped that even I was a young kid. I was totally uh, absorbed by all of that whole cultural movement, really, you know. Then it feels like for my kids, I've got seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. So similar ages, I think it's your youngest, right? And it's yeah. uh, your kids. And it's, um, it feels like music for them is a very different thing. It's a speaker in the corner that you can shout at. It'll play whatever you want, but you're on to the next track. You're on to that, that yeah. kind of cultural relevance to them. Does yeah. it seem the same in any way, shape or form to me? I don't know. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I think that's true. And I don't know if music will ever have that same cultural importance again because it was such such a pioneering time, you know. There were so many barriers that were broken in the 60s, so many frontiers that were created. And I don't know if it's even possible to do that again, you know, because we know so much. We've had also, we've got 50, 60 years of pop culture to refer to now as well, you know. But I look at my kids, I mean, they love music, definitely, and it's a big part of their lives, but not in the same way. It was that idea of like, you'd have a single, you'd be queuing up for it, or you'd have an yeah. album, you'd take it around to your mates to well, yeah, play it. because it's so immediate, isn't it, yeah. as well, yeah. And I noticed the other thing they tend to do is play a track to get me to listen to it. Oh, yeah, that's good. And then they flip it really quickly and get onto them or something else. It's like, well, can't we hear it to the end? <laughs> but, but I was just trying to think, I can't, it's important to them. I can see that they love music and they, and they play me tracks and stuff, but I don't know if it's got the same value or maybe it's just that for me at that value. I don't know. I can't tell. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? The Beatles. So the new stuff that came out. Yeah. You're still that six year old kid. I love, I love that new single. Yeah. Yeah. What did you make of the the idea of it, the technology and and cleaning up? And was that something? Well, it's a Beatles, so it's fine. <laughs> and are you yeah. going out and buying like the blue and the red again and hearing it differently? Because I've, I've downloaded them, bought them on iTunes, but I'm going to get the vinyls probably. Yeah, so, even I've got the original ones. Yeah, I love the fact that this is still like like a obsession. Yeah, I will always be a fan. You know, yeah. always. Yeah. So was it an emotional moment watching the video, the little making of video and all that? I've only seen what is, I guess, the promo for it, I suppose. It's the Beatles, you know, it's just, they're my boys. You know what I mean? It will always be that way. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is how so many of the fans of this podcast feel about the jam, the Star Council, oh. you solo. Okay. My discovery of your music was Aha uh-huh, Oh Yeah. So it'd have been 92. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago, right? Yeah. But I bet, I, bet it's gone in a, I bet that's gone in a blink of an eye. 
But this wonderful thing where it was, here's this new artist. It would have been on the radio, maybe Top of the Pops. I remember that, that yeah. performance with Jacko and yeah. Kamel and Steve Wyatt and me going, okay, here's this amazing new artist and telling all my mates, you know, you got to hear this and feeling like I discovered you only wow. to find that there's actually all this back catalog. There must be a bit of that where kids now maybe hear this Beatles and go, oh, what's this? Okay. And suddenly you've got this wealth of this back catalog to dive into is yeah, an incredible yeah. thing, right? I hope so. Yeah. But look how much they created in that short, relatively short, short space of time, right? recording career was like, I don't know, eight years or something like that. I mean, there's so many songs, so many records, which I think is a wonderful thing, you know, and I think it's really sad We say like someone like Amy Winehouse, you know, who was a brilliant, brilliant artist, but she's only left two records in the world. I mean, it's a shame that she left this world anyway, obviously, and I'm better if she'd have carried on, but it's a shame that so little music to leave behind in the world, you know, and like going back to like what we were talking about earlier, but I think that's why it's important to try and create as much as you can, really put as much as you can out. Not just for the sake of it, not shit, obviously. It's got to be good, but that's what we do. That's what we're supposed to be doing, you know. If you're a writer, then you write books, don't you? You know, if you're a playwright, you write plays. I mean, that's you make films if you're a director, you know, whatever it is, but do lots of it. But you have this quality threshold as well. Like you say, it's not just about, and the Beatles are the same. It's not, they're just pumping out crap. I and mean, if that yeah. final song, if it is the final song was crap, we wouldn't be hearing it, right? There's still that, yeah. that threshold with people yeah. like Paul McCartney and um, Ringo and the yeah. whole team behind it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine what the album would have been like, you know, if they all got back together in 95, whenever the anthology was, you know, with Free as a Bird and Real Love. I mean, they're great tunes, man. And you, when I hear them all play together, there's still that chemistry there even though two of them have gone now. But the chemistry is still there to me, you know? I love the fact, looking at you, you you're immediately transported back to yeah. being this six-year-old kid. Right? Now, the posters on the wall in the bedroom? Sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people pictures up. Yeah. The fashion was also a big thing from a very young age. Is that coming from your mum as well? Yeah, probably. But I mean, it was of that time as well. You know, fashion was, was as important as music. But yeah, my mum, like I said, she was very young. You know, she didn't have much money, but she would always sort of look nice and uh, quite trendy. But I do think it was, um, you know, it was very much of that culture of that time in the 60s as well. Fashion's changed. I mean, you know how slow fashion's changed now, you know. People are still wearing the same clothes they wore back in the early noughties. But fashion changed so quickly in the 60s. Like every week, something different. Going even into, I would say, even into the early 70s, right, when I was like a sort of suede, skinhead suede around that time. You save up for what seemed like ages to buy an item I need to go to like the youth club or the, or the disco on a Thursday or whatever and see that the, you know, the faces are wearing something else already, you know, whatever you've saved up and bought, right, is obsolete now because it's fucking something else, you know, <laughs> which you don't really have now. I mean, people have been wearing the same sort of styles for a long, long time now, but it was a very important thing it, it, and it really went hand in hand with the music, you know, attitude, the music, the clothes, all of it was all one to me. It was not a cheap thing. Like you say, the vinyl, the records, even back then. No, they're expensive. Yeah. Expensive. The yeah. clothes were expensive. So you were getting yeah. stuff on, on tick or whatever. And Got stuff on tick. Yeah. And then I'd like, you know, paper around or whatever people have at them times and then just sort of save up and then bug me mum for the rest of it. But they were just things you had to have. You must have this thing. You must have, must have that record. Got to have that shirt. Got to have them shoes. They were important, uh, cultural things. 
I love the fact all this music that you're taking on, it becomes ultimately becomes the fabric of you now and all times of styles as well. So it wasn't just that you're a mad beetle head, but actually, you know, things like the reggae and Trojan, yeah. all that kind of stuff was really yeah. important to you. The Motown chart busters, I would guess those types of things. Yeah. Just through, you know, just soaking it all up. Yeah. Well, if you went to like, um, when I used to go to the Woking football club disco on a Thursday night, that was the soundtrack, just reggae or soul. A lot of Motown, but soul generally and, uh, all the reggae tunes. And that was the soundtrack. That's all people listen to. You wouldn't, you might hear like Slade or T-Rex, maybe a couple of chart things of the time, you know, but generally you wouldn't hear Led Zeppelin or, mm. you know, that sort of thing. So that was the kind of, that was another massive influence on me, you know, to say, uh, well, what I would think is, is black music, you know, which I don't know if that does it a disservice now. I don't know. But anyway. Soul and reggae, man. That was the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And still, if, if you think about, you know, on Sunset, that, that soul yeah. is something that still now is such yeah. a big part of you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. There's core things that I've always loved and I still love. And obviously soul is a big part of that, you know, but I guess they're all the things that were my first sort of formative influences. So obviously the Beatles, right? And the whole sixties thing with the kinks and small faces, et cetera. And then also reggae. And soul music, soul and funk. And yeah, I remember hearing like, you know, James Brown's Sex Machine, the disco, and it was just like, you know, it's like being beamed in from somewhere else. You know, it was really so revolutionary at the time, I thought. Anyway, you know, what he was doing at the time was revolutionary. And it's only, you know, when you start backtracking and discovering as you go along and you discover more and more music and you sort of see the roots of James Brown comes from Africa, you know, from African music, you can, you kind of hear after African music and you think, oh, that's like James Brown, man. And, and so you see this whole um, connection with the music, the whole universal connection with this music and where it's from and its roots and how it got to be where it is and its influence. And uh, I think it's just fascinating, really. I think it's the heartbeat of the world, I think, really. And it shows how we're all really connected, you know. It was, I mean, obviously we went through this period of time, the pandemic, a couple of years back, and you realised... you started, mate, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Yeah, this daft idea that yeah. I thought would run for a couple so of weeks. It wasn't a bad thing, yeah. <laughs> Well, you created an album. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Yeah. But it's, it was that thing also of like, I remember the return to live gigs. I guess you remember it, mm. obviously, from live performance. But, you know, going out and seeing that was a really emotional thing, going out and seeing live music again. It does yeah. mean so much. And it is part of the fabric of so many of our lives. Yeah. It's such an important thing for us, isn't it? Yeah. But I f don't you think that there's kind of a, I feel there's a different sort of mood of the gigs since that time, whether it's because, like you say, because you just appreciate it more. I, just, I really miss that. But I've noticed it personally in the last sort of uh, year or year and a half, we've sort of started back up again, that there seems to be more of a, you know, more of a joy there, more of an enthusiasm for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you're not complacent. I think no. you're not just, it's another gig. You're like, this could... Including us as well, you know, both sides of the stage, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, you want to, and you want to try and, I don't know, capture more of those memories in your head. I think from my experience, yeah. you know, I just like looking around, lapping the whole experience yeah. up, not just thinking this is one gig and we'll have another one in a couple of weeks time yeah. kind of thing. And that's the same, that's exactly the sort of thing that I remind myself when I'm sitting in some grotty little dressing room prior to the show. And I'm like, well, you know, getting a bit moaning about it. And then, uh, but then I remind myself of that. Just think, hang on, you miss this. And one day you will miss this when you don't do it anymore, you know, so I try and appreciate it now even more. That curiosity of music and discovery of music has always been a key thing from you, like you say, from a young age, then these discos and stuff. But even now, I mean, so many of us have been introduced to new artists 
by the things that you've mentioned, whether it's people like Villagers or Declan O'Rourke or Lucy Rose. We're not finding this kind of stuff on the radio. I don't know how much no. of it is algorithms on your Spotify. Where are you finding this stuff? You seem to be ahead of the curve. I don't know if I'm ahead of the curve. I, I just think I'm still a fan. You know, I'm still a fan of music generally, really. So any blinkers I have had in my life when it comes to music have been have long gone, have long fallen away. So I'm really open to listening to anything, really. Whether I like it doesn't matter. But but a lot of it's either word of mouth. Some would say like with Villagers or Lucy. I mean, I probably, both of them two, I saw on TV shows or we did later with them or something like that. So I kind of introduced their music through that. And with Declan, we were both on the same label. That's when I heard uh, Galileo and that first album of his. So a lot of it's word of mouth, you know, whereas like we'd all be taking a bus over to your mate's house with a couple of albums under your arm to play, you've got to hear this record or lending records at school. Now we're just sort of, you know, posting things off, posting a track, you know, hear this. You're still getting to hear it. It's just a different format. That's all. So there's a lot of that with me and, and my mates sending each other tracks. You've got to hear this, you've got to hear this. One thing that's come up quite a bit on the podcast is the 2am text ball. You're an- <laughs> Too late. Oh, okay. Yeah. You like a late night text because this, this is generally when you operate, I guess. This is when I start to wake up. Because <laughs> life's, I would literally wake up now, surely. Um, yeah, easier, yeah, but I just, I forget what time it is. That's why it's. But is it the day's done? You know, the kids are bad, story time's they, done they, or whatever. They really late my kids, right? Which is not their fault. It's our fault, but they go to bed for not at two o'clock, but they got to bed fairly late. So by the time they got to bed, I'm like, thank Christ for that. And I, that's the only time I really get a chance to listen to stuff or think about stuff or write or chat or whatever. It's nearly always our sort of 12 onwards, right? So yeah, that's only because I just forget, I get lose track of time. <laughs> and you know that thing, right? When you start listening to music, whatever time, when you start listening to music, you just get carried away. You get absorbed into it, don't you? And all of a sudden, fucking two hours has gone past and it's two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning or whatever. Because you've just gone into this little magical world where you just don't, time doesn't matter. And you're just in this moment. And and what have you got? Is it like a room at home that you've got your setups, your headphones? Or is it trying to get your what you want on the smart speaker and being interrupted continuously? What's the setup? I have got a record room at home. But I can't really get to use it because it's like a box room. There's so much shit in the bottle. The they dump all their crap in there, me included, I suppose. So I can't really even get to my deck, really, unless I had sort of like, you know, it's like an obstacle course to get to my deck. But I've been using uh, my, my twin boys, who are nearly 12. They both bought these little record players with external speakers, like, almost like a sort of modern dance set or something. Mm-hmm. So I've been playing a lot of stuff on that as well, which is downstairs in the kitchen. And I have to say, a lot of it's off my phone, man, as well. Especially if I'm up at two or three in the morning, because now, you know, I can't make too much noise. So probably headphones and off my phone, you know. Yeah. And is it still that vinyl would be the format of choice? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely my favorite, but I don't play as much vinyl as I used to. If I'm really honest. Yeah. Can't get to the decks. That's the Can't get to the decks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and even if I could get to them, I'd probably still have to wear headphones because it'd be late at night and I'd fucking wake everyone up. Yeah. What's been on recently then? So what have you been digging 2023? Uh, well, I'm just too lately. The thing I really love, right? And I think it come out not this year, but last year, 22, I think is by Yusef Days. It's called Black Classical Music. Oh, I heard that the other day. Yeah. I was in, um, record shop in Kingston. They played that. I listened oh, to it. Yeah. Incredible yeah, great, case yeah, of that. Yeah. Really good, really. Yeah. Great, great music. I thought great record. That's been on a lot. And then, um, what else? 
I love Dot Allison's record, her last record, Consciousology, I think it's called. And then I was playing Madness's new album last night. It's a couple of really good tracks on that. Yeah, I don't know. But a lot of it's like, um, like I said to you, there's a lot of people, my mates send me tracks, just a track, you know. And then you start listening to that and then you get onto something else and uh, it goes like the way it goes. It? Yeah, I love that rabbit hole you go yeah. down and suddenly you're discovering wonderful, all yeah. kinds of things. Isn't that still yeah. wonderful? That's what I'm saying. You come out of that like sort of two or three hours later maybe, right? And then it's three or four in the morning or whatever. <laughs> I'll send a text to somebody saying how good it is. Yeah, brilliant. Hear this, hear this. <laughs> I want to take you back to the beginning. So you and Brooksy and you formed this band. This is Shy Kid Performing. You've talked about how there was this, you know, you went to a couple of gigs and there was this kind of cultural revolution for you and your music as a kid and with punk, it kind of changing everything in a way for you. I mean, prior to that, it would have been like Dr. Feelgood, you know, they were before punk happened and I thought they were one of the most exciting things around that time. They were like 74, 75, Down by the Jetty came out their first album. And me and Brooksy went to see them, Guildford Civic, which is now G Live. And that was just incredible, man. That was when they had Wilco still and uh yeah just that just blew us away really just the power and commitment of that band and then that was like probably like early 75 maybe something like that i think and then because it was quite desolate the 70s after the whole sort of skinhead thing finished for me i found it quite a boring sort of period really i didn't really relate to much of the music that was going on then and then by the sort of mid 70s there was all those big sort of like uh American stadium bands, you know, I don't even know what a lot of them are called, but they all had big hair and big sounding records. And, but I didn't relate to any of that at all, you know. So I was kind of waiting. I didn't even know what shape or form it would take, but I was kind of waiting for something new or when's it going to be our time? You know, when's it going to be my generation's time? You know, no pun intended, obviously. So I was kind of waiting for that moment, even though I didn't know what, how it would happen. And then me and Tufty, I know, you know, me and Steve Carver and a few other mates went up to see the pistols, right? We both had read the review in uh, the enemy by Neil Spencer, right? I think it was probably one of their first reviews of the pistols at the marquee, mm. right? And we were like, have you seen that review? And like, yeah, we can see it. Yeah, I've got to go and see it. And we've got to see that band. And that was, uh, we went up and took the train up to the Lyceum in the Strand, right? And it was an all-nighter, Friday night, all-nighter. And there was Supercharge, the pretty things I think were headlining. Although I don't remember either of them. And the pistols came on really late, like uh, five in the morning or something like that, you know. Perfect for you. Yeah. Perfect for me. I was just waking up, yeah. <laughs> I was definitely awake that night anyway. But uh, that was it, man. Ah, this is it. This is the revolution. Because there's a band at that Which point. Which wasn't necessarily, but for right. us at the time, and for those brief couple of years or whatever it was, you know. Yeah. Because as a band, the jam, you're playing like the working men clubs and yeah. things like that, but you're playing... Rock so, and roll, R&B yeah. covers, all of it, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. is this is still the guys in drinking their beers, not necessarily turning up to see you, but they're there no, for the no, other things, just right? Them. I know they're, they're on a Saturday night, piss up, cheap, cheap drink, and yeah. the band's a second, secondary thing. But that was, uh, that kept us playing and made us better musicians and tight, pretty tight as a band. And earned a few, Bob. But it was always, our eye was always to try and, get to London to on the pub circuit. At that time, you could play so many pubs in London. Right? We used to play in the Fulham Palace Road, right? The Greyhound in Fulham Palace Road was a great boozer. And uh, the Scottish fella there used to run it. I can't remember his name now, but he had like a, he said, I've got like 365 different bands. I could have a different band every night of the week, you know, but he liked us anyway. And he gave us a few shots. And um, so once we started playing those few pubs in, in London, which was around sort of, 
76, I guess, around that time, 75, 76. That was the way forward, you know, because we were playing more to people our own age and people who actually come to see a band, that, not necessarily us, but come to see a band because they know it's a live venue. As that went on and we got more and more shows and we played the Hope and Anchor and the Red Cow and Aaron Smith and all that. And it just changed, changed us all, you know. And then after I saw the Pistols and then I went to see them and the Clash as well at the Hundred Club and then my writing changed. I mean, I was just probably just trying to mimic what I was hearing, I suppose. So things like In the City was the first big sort of tune for me. And I can distinctly remember us rehearsing that song in uh, Shearwater Youth Club. I'd just written it and we rehearsed it and we finally we sort of really got it together and just thought it's so good. And it was kind of like a, this is our new direction now. And it was kind of went that way. You know? I imagine it sounded quite out of place against the, or maybe not the rock and roll type of yeah. things, was it? <laughs> no, it was, yeah. But we had to still play them other old rock and roll tunes. We didn't have any other songs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Even when you got to London, it's still what, 60, 80% of yeah, yeah, covers. covers? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And was there a moment, has there been a moment where you went actually now, because I noticed in interviews and things, you, you lead with calling yourself a songwriter first over anything, musician, singer, singer, those types of things. Yeah. Was there a time where you went, actually now I feel like I can write songs that I'm happy with? I don't think I had that until like all mod cons. Not really, no. I mean, there was a couple of good songs in the city. It's a good little single and uh, there might be one off modern world. I don't know. I've never heard it. But um, not, not for a long time anyway. <laughs> but I didn't take myself seriously as a writer until one more cons. I was just sort of bluffing it, really, copying other people. I mean, the first album in the city is almost like a rewrite of the Who's My Generation, you know. I hadn't really found my own voice, not at all. Mm. I was still copying things and uh, the words and all that was shocking, really, man, looking back on it. But then I was 18, that's my only excuse, really. No, but they connect with so, I mean, so many of the people who yeah, listen to this podcast, yeah. right? I mean, some people really love it. This is the modern world, which is, I don't know how. I've no idea. <laughs> I've not heard it since the time it was been made, you know, and it kind of nearly finished us off that record, you know. It was Chris Parry's idea. To, he said, we should put another, the Beatles used to put two albums out. Yeah, you should do another one. It's like, fuck, you know, because it's already taken me like good sort of two years to write in the city. <laughs> and that was a fucking, that was a slog. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean you've got to do it again? And, uh, now you'd love that though. Now you'd be like, yeah, come on. That's different, you know. Yeah. Now I might rise to the challenge, but I didn't have that. I wasn't, I wasn't like a natural, I don't think I've ever been a natural talent. You know what I mean? I think I've had to work at it and then it's taken a long time to become anything really in my estimation. But having said that, I thought, well, the time of all my cons, I thought I started to take it more seriously then, you know, because you've got things like down in the tube station and English rows and stuff like that. So it was kind of breaking out of that, um, the punk thing, you know, and becoming more musical and just more us, more our sound. That was the moment for me, I think, with that album. And the fact that people liked it as well and it got good reviews and so it kind of felt a bit like uh, people take it a bit more seriously, you know. And then consequently, I took it more seriously as well. But that's the other side of it. Yeah, definitely. And I guess you're, as a kid, you've got these dreams of top of the pops, top of the charts. Yeah. All those things happen. Only for a bit though. Yeah. Because by the time when we did in the city, we were like, oh, fucking, is this it? <laughs> <laughs> Doing top of the pops. It was just, Jesus. Yeah. So I spent all those years, including in the sixties, religiously watching top of the pops, man. That was the only show really. And then think, oh, I'm going to be on there one day. I'm going to get on that show. And then, uh, and then getting on it, it's like, actually, it's fucking rubbish. <laughs> I mean, but 
but I guess it was some sort of milestone, I suppose, for us. We're just being on TV anyway, generally. But uh, I didn't like it whatsoever. I thought it was so fake and so phony and all the sort of crappy DJs they had on there and all the floor managers telling the kids to clap and when to clap and when to not to clap. And miming as well. Yeah. Not playing live. That was so weird. Lip syncing, all that shit. And in them days as well, you had to sometimes actually re-record the track, right, in a few hours. Sometimes it would just fake it and you just bung the geezer a little drink and they'd fuck off to the pub and <laughs> swap the tapes and that. But it was just bizarre, man, really. You know, trying to replicate down in the tube station, for instance, or something in like three hours. Like saying it took us like a day or two days to get to get this thing together, man. But um so that was a bit of a letdown. But to be on national TV, I suppose, was a bit of a for the first time was a bit of something anyway. You've always, uh, it would appear to me, you had this uncomfortable relationship with fame. Yeah. Clearly not a driver at all, but there are levels where it gets to a certain level of notoriety of, you know, I think in Stanley Road level, uh, that type of thing as well, where it doesn't sit comfortably and you want to switch it back on. Yeah. It's too fake for me, man. I don't like, I can't live up to that. Whatever people's expectations of that is, it's not me at all. I couldn't care less about it. If people like me because of my songs, my music, then great, fantastic, you know, but that's it. That's it for me. Or if you like the pair of shoes I'm wearing that particular photograph, that's fine because I've done that myself, you know. But beyond that, I couldn't care less about any of it, any of that at all. And it just brings other problems with it, you know. I mean, so false and so fake around, uh, you know, for instance, like Stanley Road or something like that, you know, because sort of flavour of the month and all that, and everyone's laughing at your jokes and it's all funny. It's just bollocks, you know what I mean? And really, I just want everyone to fuck off and leave me alone and let me just play my music and leave it at that. It's enough, you know? But there are times where you could, and most artists you would have thought would go, okay, we'll go again. So you have Going Underground, you continue that sound. You have Our Favourite Shop is Our Favourite Shop Part 2. Stanley yeah. Road, you build it. It seems like every time to me that you go the opposite direction. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a destructive personality thing or... A, I don't think it's destructive. I just think I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to get into this thing where you keep making the same fucking record over because one record's successful. Let's do it again. I'm not into that. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to be the person playing Wembley Arena or something. Well, I did actually recently. <laughs> but, that was oh, for, but that was fine financial reasons. But I don't care about being the biggest artist on the planet and playing uh, to millions of people in one show and all that crap. And uh, it doesn't interest me. It doesn't interest me at all. Because also, right, when you get to those levels... Your freedom gets curtailed a little bit as well, I think. It's easier to fall into the trap of just replicating what you did before because it sold well last time. Let's do it again. It's easy to lose that spirit of trying to do something different next time, experiment a little bit. You get pushed into this little tight sort of uh, framework. So I've always kind of kicked against that, I suppose, really, you know. And whatever people think I am in those sort of times, I'm not, you know. And um, I'm not doing it for those reasons. I mean, it's of, of course, it's nice if you sell records and all that, but I don't, especially now at my age, I couldn't give a fuck, really. I just want to make what I want to make. And obviously, I hope people like it and it makes a difference to their lives, possibly. Some tracks might do and in a good way, you know, positive way. But beyond that, I'm not interested. Mm. You know, it doesn't, none of the other trappings interest me. You know, I've got a great lifestyle. I'm very, very lucky. I've always had made good money and I've lived how I wanted to live and I haven't really got a boss, especially not anymore. 
no one breathing down my neck about, can you do this? Can we, you know, I'm a very fortunate position. And so I'm more than happy just with what I've got with that. You know, I don't wish for anything else. All I want is a bit more time to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. You know? mm. And I guess so it's just that thing of it being on your terms and yeah. what you want to do, how you want to do yeah, it. Yeah, because you see, with success and fame and all that bollocks, right, it's easier for other people to manipulate where that goes, you know, and to try and sustain that. And I feel you have to give up so much of yourself when you that when that happens, you know. I often think, I wonder if those people are, that are in those positions when they're playing to like these massive audiences and stuff, do they really like it? Are they really happy with it? I know the money's good and all that, blah, blah, blah. But I wonder if they're really satisfied with that. Maybe some are, you know. And then and if they are, they're obviously very good at what they do, you know. They're good at bad doing that stuff, you know, which is fine, you know. And I don't knock that at all. Someone's got to do it, but not me. Obviously, we've had so many guests on the podcast, right? And some of these people have asked questions on yeah. me, Paul, all right? So let me find these. I've not referred to any of these. types right the this. Right. Steve Brooks says you're a national treasure. Is it question your tea-making skills, which I feel like is more offensive than, anything, really offensive. than questioning your songwriting yeah. skills, quite frankly? Absolutely. He says it's all about the music. That was his bit of advice to me. Yeah. All about the music. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Parry has been on the podcast. He said, this is about all mod cons, actually. This is interesting. He said, did you go into those demo sessions for all mod cons with all the songs in your back pocket already, but you held them back because you wanted to show that you were the best songwriter in the jam? <laughs> no, sadly, no, sadly, no. I didn't have anything to bring to the table when we did the, those demos and anything I did have, we demoed and it was shocking, dreadful. And Bruce, bless him, man, he's tried to step up and write a few, but it wasn't happening anyway. Enough. But Chris, thank God command my little flat in Baker Street and say, look, I've got to have a chat with you. And he says, look, this is just shit. These songs are shit, all of them. And you've got to start again or it's not going to happen. And that was, he was the first person to say that. No one else in our team was saying that at all. We just kind of went along with this thing. And fortunately, Chris said that. And that's just like, that's what made me sit up and think, okay, right, let's get serious about this now, you know. And we did. And I did. And then all my cons happened. I don't imagine there have been many periods where people have had that type of conversation with you, though. Is that because actually at that point, the light bulb went off and you took it seriously? Well, he said it from a good place, you know, and he was absolutely right. It wasn't just him doing a heavy-handed record company thing. It was right what he said. If we'd have gone down that road, even if the record company had released it, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. That'd have been a nail in the coffin, man, after modern world, you know. So thank goodness he did say that, you know, and uh, it made me sit up and listen, you know. There's been other times where it's not a similar situation, but say where with like the end of the style council with the house album we made, which the record company or the MD actually at the time hated and says, no, I'm not putting out. I mean, that wasn't the same situation for me. I thought that was very valid release at the time. I thought there was valid music, what we were making there. And that's where my heart was at. So that's a different situation really. But Chris, he came from a different place. You know, what he was saying was correct and, mm -hmm. and was right. The remarkable thing is, so that I talked about my discovery of your music in 1992. Everything I was listening to before then was house music. And this wouldn't have been off the back of the Style Council because I wouldn't have known yeah, I didn't yeah. get released at the time, right? Yeah. But it was, you know, it was, that was what was happening. And yeah. the music, you were hit, lapping up the music from the States, presumably, yeah. and bringing it into your music. And yeah, that was what yeah. the Style Council always did. You were always doing your own thing. You were always pushing it in different directions, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. And I just loved that music when I heard it, Chicago house stuff, because I loved the soulful thing in it. And after the sort of slickness of the 80s productions and all that stuff, you know, Soul came really slick. Alexander O'Neill, all that sort of thing. It's just sounded raw again, you know. It sounded like, I don't necessarily say there was, but it sounded like they were made in someone's bedroom or something, you know, like just on these drum machines and sequences and whatever. That appealed to me. 
there was a kind of, and a lot of them like Promised Land and also like a, some of the Ten City stuff. And, but anyway, there was a kind of gospel sort of thing to it to me as well. You know, I could hear the sort of gospel influence in us in it, especially in like kind of piano style and that. So I just loved the rawness of it. And I like the fact it was, uh, it was kind of really the opposite of what was happening production wise in the eighties. You know, it wasn't that slick thing anymore. It was kind of really raw. And I loved that. And typical of me, right? When I get into something, it's just like, right, this is it, right? Fucking everything else is shit. And then we're just only doing this from now on, you know? But that's back to that obsessive nature thing, yeah. I suppose, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. Are you a, a collector in that way? Well, I, I was collecting at that time. I was to go in all the shops and get loads of imports and all that sort of thing. But also in my mind, I was thinking, well, this is what a little mod would have done in uh, 1963. They'd just been buying a different sort of uh, import. That's, do you know what I mean? We have to talk about modern modernism, what it means to you, right? Dr. Robert said, had a great question. He said, is God a mod? If there's such a thing as God, probably, yeah. Can we talk about your, what it means to you? Yep. And well, God or mod? <laughs> well, both. Actually. Thing, no, actually both, because I think, um, <laughs> we'll come back to God, because there, there is a lot of God in your music. God will come back to you. Thanks. <laughs> if you can get in touch, that'd be lovely. When was the discovery of mod for you and this obsessive nature thing comes back into play? I would guess, but. Yeah. You've got your own interpretation of it as well, yeah? Or oh, everybody yeah. has their own interpretation of it. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. It probably started for me, I think it was like, I'm going to say like 1975, around that time. Bearing in mind, right, that prior to that, up to like 72, from like 1970 to 72, right, I've been into the whole suede thing, right, which really wasn't a million miles away, in my mind, to the mod thing. The Skinner thing might have been a little bit different, but it was still, there was a lot of very similar sort of sources and influences, I think, that were quite similar, I think, anyway. Definitely with the clothing, and but also with the music as well, you know. Just instead of Scar and like early soul stuff, it was just that much, you know, a few years down the line. I just thought, you know, something crazy is just seeing a picture, you know, and I can't, I mean, I can't really think of the exact moment. Seeing a picture or hearing... um I never heard the Who's music in the 60s as a kid. I don't know why. I mean, I heard everything else, but I never heard the Who and I have no idea why. So I hadn't heard my generation. When I heard that on this compilation I bought, right, I just thought, fuck, you know, that's just so amazing. And at that time, right, there was still, some of the 60s records were still on catalogue. So when I went up to uh, Rock On, right, there's a little song called Rock On, Ted Carroll and Roger Armstrong used to run it in uh, Soho Market, where the old, where the fire station is now, right, right at the top of Piccadilly. There's a little market there. And I remember I bought um, the Who album there, the My Generation there, and I bought the Artwoods album as well. And uh, so a few kind of moddy things. And then I just thought it was the most amazing sound, you know, but, the, but it was a look more than anything anyway. And I think that come from like a picture like I saw in like the, either the NME or I don't know, a magazine or whatever. That's fucking great, man. And it also reminded me, I mean, it was probably like right in the back of my subconscious or whatever, recognize that look probably from years before when I was a little kid, you know, clocking without even thinking about it really. But it rung a bell with me anyway. It was kind of like, I kind of, I kind of know that look, but I don't know it. That was the start of it for me, you know? And then it was very hard to, uh, at that time to get any information on. You can't go, you're not Googling, are you? No. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah, and there wasn't this, you know, now you can look up all these fantastic pictures on your phone and all that stuff. Right. But you, it was really difficult then. So, Anywhere I saw anything, you know, there's a few little articles in NME around that time. And I remember seeing that. There's a magazine called The History of Rock, but that might have been later. I don't know. But anyway, that had a great mod issue, great pictures in it. Bit by bit, I just tried to find wherever I could. I tried to find um, photos, information, whatever. And then I got a scooter as well. You know, I bought my GP around about 75, I think it was 76. 
And that was it for me, really. I've never looked back since. It would just be me driving around Woking uh, Town Centre with on my scooter and my parker, right? Which is, I don't know what people thought. I didn't really care anyway. So it was little bit by bit, you know, I managed to find some old stock stay press in the co-op there, left over from the early 70s. My mum bought me a Brutus jumper. She found, like, again, old stock. So I would just try to, bit by bit, expand this thing, this idea, you know. Probably getting it wrong compared to the original mods, but it didn't really matter to me. I just kind of, this was my interpretation of it, really. And then obviously later on, it exploded, didn't it? 79 onwards, you know. I'd look out into the audience and just see a sea of green parkers, you know. But where you are now with it, it feels like it's a, this hasn't always been a thing that looks back. There's a difference. Well, obviously it comes from, you know, it comes from the, its roots in the late fifties onwards, but I think it's, uh, it's definitely endured, isn't it? You know, it's still going strong, isn't it? You know, everywhere I go in the world, there's always little pockets of it. Some of it's not to my taste. Some of it is, but either way, I don't mind. I just think it's quite incredible that it's, it's got a life of its own now. And all these people interpret it in different ways and changing it and adapting it. I think it's really fascinating. I think, I think it's a good, very good thing anyway. But I don't like it. I don't like the side of it or when there's a side of it that only wants to listen to music before 1960, whatever. Cause why cut yourself off from that, man? There's so much brilliant music that's been made in between and still being made now. You mm. know? So in your head, it's as much a mindset thing as it is about the fashion, the clothes, yeah, the, yeah, the totally, music yeah, and yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah. about, it's, it's a yeah. mentality thing too. It's a faith, you know, in my mind anyway, for me it is anyway. It's something to, uh, something to believe in. And, uh, in what sense? It's no what? bad thing at all. Keeping yourself nice, having a bit of self pride, wash clean, clean clothes, press clothes. They're not bad things, man. They're good things, you know. Yeah. But it's not just about the clothes as well. The sharp clothes then is, it's also no, about, but it's also about, you know, sort of caring about your appearance and, uh, mm. not from necessarily for other people. I never dress for other people. I only ever dress for myself. And it's a bit about having some pride about yourself. And, uh, and then beyond that, I think it's also being open to all these different influences as well. We're very good at sort of, Mods are very good at nicking little bits and pieces or adapting them, you know, taking from lots of different cultures and different ideas, which I think is, is part of the old, you know, the original mod thing. I think that's very much part of that. Taking a bit from uh, Italian or French fashions or, or ideas and, but also, you know, from at that time, modern jazz and modern art, embracing anything that was new and modern, you know. So I think that's, uh, it's a good thing. I think, I think it's a very good thing. And, um, keep the faith you know and it means a lot to me i mean that means more to me the older i've got really there's times in my life when i can see it's a test of faith when you just think oh, everything's just shit man this is my life what's happening and you know and i can see that's just uh it's just a test it's a test this test in your faith you know you and i'm able to come back to that it's something to come back to and center on and see it as a rock you know and it's like uh this makes sense or what's talking nonsense? No, no, really interesting. So it's something to come back to, right? And something to, to refocus on when you kind of lose your faith at times and you just despair of things and whatever, personal things, world things, whatever. Look at the world lab at the moment. It's important to remember that that rock's still there and it will always be there. It's just that you just move away from it sometimes. And then you come, if you're lucky, you come back to it. Some poor folk don't, they just get lose sight of that rock and they get lost forever. It's all kind of bound up in all that for me, really, you know, and I probably, 
made more of the whole mod thing than what some people do. But uh, there you go, you know. It comes back to that belief, those core values that tie in. You found something that fitted with your beliefs. and Yeah, and I have adapted it in my mind as well, to be fair, you know. But then don't we all, without any religion or any faith, you know. Well, you've written about that quite a bit in the sense that people, like God, let's come back to that, but people cherry pick the bits they want yeah. from the readings and the, you know, the yeah. Bibles or whatever. Yeah, mostly not for the betterment of mm. mankind either. Purely selfish and self-motivated and misguided. But I don't think that with mods, I think it's a very good and yeah. very positive thing. You've always been interested in writing about social inequality. Uh-huh. That's something that I guess is kind of comes from your working class roots, which yeah. you never feel you've moved away from, again, back to core values, I suppose. Yeah. And I will always think of myself as being working class and I'm very proud of that as well. And I don't care how, how big my house is or how much money I've earned. I will always have those values and I will always think of myself as being working class. A friend of mine, again, I won't name her, is texted me some time ago and he said, isn't it funny how we sort of end up middle class? And I was like, speak for yourself, mate, because I fucking ain't. I don't care about houses or money or whatever. I'm not. I will always be working class and I always will approach life from that point of view. And I think it's very important to hang on to, really. And I've no wish to be middle class. So, yeah, so it's very important that, again, you know, very formative time, you know, and seeing... We never, I mean, me and my sister never struggled, right? We always had clean clothes. We always had food. But, you know, I could see it was a struggle for my mum and dad, you know, as it is for a lot of families and still is. It's even worse now for some people. The food banks and clothes banks are shocking. But there was a very noticeable class divide and division. And uh, I think it's still there. And I think it gets papered over and people like to think we're in a a classless society, but we're not at all. We're not at all. And I think if anything, that division is getting stronger as well, I think, at the moment anyway. There was a period of time when it could have uh, changed and possibly the 60s was one of them and possibly the early 90s. But otherwise, I think, in, especially in recent years with Boris Johnson and all his cronyism and uh, and all these pricks in power, you know, that are just worse than ever, I think, really. But that division is as great as as it was in my time when I was a kid, I think. Probably more so, really. But I think also, you know, with the working class of my youth, there was a very strong work ethic. There was a very strong work ethic. Everyone's got to work. You've got to pay your way. You've got to make money. And being on the dole was like, it was a bit, you know, a bit frowned upon. It was like, you know, I had to sign on, you know. So there was a kind of pride value in the, as well in that, that you worked and uh, did your best, you yeah. know, hustled. My old man was a hustler, definitely even though he worked his bollocks off as well, but he was still hustle and a uh, little bit light-fingered at times as well, shall we say, but he did what he had to do for his family, you know? Yeah, of course. John, yeah. as obviously as you would expect, has come up a lot on the podcast. Yeah. Such a key driver in those early days with the jam. Yeah. And a best friend as much as a, as a dad. Yeah. Both, yeah. I was always conscious that was my dad as well, even though it was my best friend, but, but definitely, yeah, I don't know how far we would have got without him, to be honest. Maybe it wouldn't have even happened. I don't know. I have no idea. Because he was the one who would go and hustle the gigs, get a van from someone, whether it's beg borrow, not unless he's still, but beg and borrow to get a van. And our little funny little equipment we had and all that. So you've got to have someone who's got that drive. If you haven't got someone in the band that's got that drive to do that, to get to organize these things, you fuck really, but you know, you need someone to pull these things together, you know. Mm. So we were really lucky and uh, I was extremely lucky to have a dad like that. 
that was prepared to do that and was not only prepared to do it, but in, actively encouraged it as well. Because I think for him, I think anyway, that he saw it as a way out for me as well. That I wouldn't have to necessarily go through what he's went through and I could maybe make it in music or make a different living from making music, you know. It wasn't a blind parent eyes, aren't you brilliant, whatever you do kind of thing. Think, it was, it obviously saw some talent in you to put that much effort. I think effort, so. Yeah, think? it wasn't like a, you wanted me, it wasn't like a showbiz dad or something, you know, it wasn't like that at all. But I think he must have seen something in me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I couldn't see anything in here apart from my little pipe dreams of one day making it and all that. I had no idea how you'd actually do that. But, um, he must have thought we, I had something or we had something. And he was right. The other yeah. thing that he was so key to was this connection with the fans, you know, breaking down the barriers in yeah. the same way as artists at that time were not doing. You know, you were not getting this from Sting and the police. The fact that the, the, the fans were coming in in the sound checks, you know, there were fan clubs. You were signing things afterwards and me, or turning up at the hotel, having drinks with the fans, all that kind of stuff. It plays such a key part in the legacy of that band, I suppose, in a way, the jam, yeah. but, but all the way through your career. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was crazy back in the day, man, because uh, it was almost like a matinee show, the sound check. I mean, literally, there'd be like hundreds, not really not sold out, I mean, but I mean, hundreds of kids would come in to watch the sound check. We'd let them in, which is quite mad thinking about now. And then we'd stay behind, you know, I'd stay like for a couple of hours sometimes, just chatting and signing shit for people and whatever. Fortunately, no one had a phone in them days, man. You didn't have the phone doing the selfie thing and all that. So it was more just chatting with people, and that was interesting to do that. But their personal connection, these were often, they were kids, weren't they? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 12, I mean, 13. I was young, but they, yeah. were, they were like 12 or 13 yeah, yeah. or something, you know. Yeah, and these these memories, it's properly ingrained in their heads now, what are we yeah. now, 45 years later, something like that. Yeah. And that was led by you and John wanting to do those things, those, those connections yeah. in that way? Yeah, I would say that's true. One of the other things that's come up a lot on the podcast is the card score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this was I've you. I've been a victim of that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, really? Because it was yeah. you, you. I had to stop in the end, man, because I was a bad loser. <laughs> <laughs> and someone might say I was a, a bad winner as well, because if I made, ever made any lot big money and all, if I ever made money, lucky enough to get out of the, out of the game with a bit of money, I would immediately go and buy something. So the next day I would turn up, you know, with we on tour with a Mac. I was like, thanks, boys, you know, <laughs> or whatever it may have been anyway. But I had to stop again because I couldn't take the losing. But, uh, yeah, that was a very big part of it all. Card school, yeah, that lasted many, many years, that as well. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people. Many we... victims. Many, yeah. many people got burned. <laughs> well, Kenny, I think he said he bought a new extension off the back of it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Brand new Probably kitchen. True, yeah. <laughs> it was being insane, man. I used to see some nights I wasn't playing by this time. It was like a mound, like a fucking mound of money, cash and, you know. In the hotel bar, the hotel lobby, you know, all night sessions they'd have. Crazy. Spanner has been on the podcast. Yeah, Spanner, yeah. yeah. Bless yeah. him, yeah. He said that uh, his question was, have you forgiven him for winning 200 quid and then hiding in the toilets on the train? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say this until he got into the station and then so he didn't have to put it back in. He was very tight, man. I'll say that about Spanner. <laughs> Hannah Peel has been on the podcast and we should talk about current bandmates in a sec as well. Um, Hannah Peel is, I mean, this wonderful connection that you've had creating some beautiful music together over the yeah. past few years. Such a talent. Bit of advice. She said, talk about Bowie or the Beatles. We talked about the Beatles. What would you say to them if you met them? She'd like to know. Who the Beatles? The Beatles or, and or Bowie. You've met McCartney, but I guess I you haven't met. Paul, I met Paul and I met Ringo. Yeah. Okay. What would I say to him? 
Well, I have met, I met them too. I didn't even meet Bowie. I'd love to have met him and John as well. Uh, what would I say? Well, what did I say to him? Uh, how are you? You all right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can't sort of go, you know, let it, let it all out what they've meant to me. They probably know that anyway. I just want to be not cool as in cold, but I mean, just sort of try and keep it down a little bit, you know. And, um, I think with Paul William, I've met him a few times and I think I've said to him, do you know how much you, know, you meant to me and your band's meant to me? And he was very sweet. He went, well, it's the same way we met little Richard, you know, and we felt the same way then. So he kind of understood that. I guess that's true, isn't it? Because all of you creating music will have had influences yeah, yeah, and totally, things yeah. he loves and yeah. that same kind of feeling yeah. like, about somebody. Yeah, we've all got that. And we've all copied other people as well. You know, some, you know start, especially when you start off. Nia Wynn, so a more recent singer-songwriter, wants to know about the football. There is a Chelsea flag in here somewhere. There it is yeah, over there, right? Nightmare, yeah. How solid is the football fascination, fandom? And it is Chelsea, right? But- yeah, of course, yeah. But that, that was the first team my dad took me to see, first division team. So again, those things stay with you, I suppose. They were a great team at that time. This was late 60s, 68. So Osgood and Charlie Cook. Benetti? Peter Benetti and Chopper Harris and uh, Alan Hudson, all them cats, man. Charlie Cook was a great winger, Scottish fella, brilliant. So that was the first, they were the first team I ever saw and they've remained uh, my team. But I mean, I'm, I've only really got back into football recently because my son's mad for it at the moment. One of my sons, Bowie, plays in the team. So I've kind of got my interest in football reactivated through his, his okay. involvement. So you're now one of those parents who's having to drive them around to training and yeah, Sunday yeah, yeah. everywhere, taxi service yeah. type thing. Brilliant. Yeah. But I love it. I love it as well. So who does he support? Liverpool, oh. which is good. Well, it's not a bad thing. Could be worse, man, right? Could, yeah, could be one of the Manchester clubs, exactly. all right? Fair. Yeah, yeah, still Chelsea, man. Yeah. And do you get to go to games much? I've been in recent years, but not often. Every couple of couple of times, yeah. So I'm always cautious about saying I'm a Chelsea fan because I know there'd be other football heads that'd be going, "Well, where were you then? Where I come to you?" But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So listen, I'm <laughs> I'm a casual observer at times. But if someone said, who's your team? It's always be Chelsea. Okay. All right. It's, um, I mean, I'm a Chelsea supporter, not for the reason of, and I was there when they were crap and got relegated into right. the L division. Nor, you know, I so. wasn't. I'm-, <laughs> so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Andy McDonald has been on the podcast. Yeah. And he says, was there anything that we could have done better as a record company? Were there things that we could have done to support you in a better way? And I thought this is really interesting because it was coming off the back of, obviously, the, the deal with Go Discs yeah. comes off the back of that experience we just talked about of, of modernism and the rejected record. You need the confidence. You need the backing from a record company in you yeah, as an artist. Absolutely, yeah? yeah. There's nothing. No, they were brilliant. Go Discs were just like a breath of fresh air, man. They were just a great little team, real family vibe there. There's nothing else they could have done. They were brilliant. And I loved working with all of them. And I was so sad when it all went. I was really disappointed. Not in Andy. I was just disappointed when it all fell apart, you know, when they were taken back over by, um, I don't know who it was, Universal, yeah, phone, 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 phone around, whatever it was. Yeah. It's all the same thing these days. That was really sad. It was just like, oh, we just, 
felt comfortable and we just had success with, you know, Wildwood and Stanley Road and whatever. And then it was all just kind of gone, you know, just gone again, you know. But Andy's a great fella, man. He's just a yeah, beautiful guy. And he got paid a lot of money when he, when they bought him out or whatever they did or took over Godis, uh, phonogram or universal as it is now. Bless him, man. He gave everyone, me included, considerable money from that as well. He sort of shared out anyway, all the staff. So he was a good fella and, uh, but it was a great team, you know, and I missed that. I really, after that, I really missed that family thing and we had that connection we all had, you know? And even though it was a big label and it was a very successful label, but it still felt like an indie and it still felt like a, yeah, this family thing. And I loved that. It's very rare to find that and you can never plan for those things. They just happen, you know, they just happen at a moment. And, um, yeah, that was really sad when that all went. And all of a sudden I was back on, you know, Island or wherever it was, just moved over to this other lot, you know, who I had no connection with. Didn't really like the MD was a complete tusser as well, and I didn't like any of them. And uh, so it's kind of like, fucking, we've got to start again finding a home, and you know, and that all just fizzled out generally. But there's absolutely nothing they could have done any better apart from hanging on the label a bit longer. Mm. So it feels to me that there's that element of when you're written off and you have been at times yeah. in your career. I did it last night. I wrote, I wrote myself off last night. Did you? <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> There are clearly an artist who writes the songs that you write. There are elements of self-doubt in what you do. It's not all yeah. confidence, confidence, right? No, there are. Not at all. Does that imposter syndrome thing kicking in as well at times where you go, actually, I don't know if I'm deserving of this. Am I good enough? Those type of things that, that kind of monkey on your shoulder talking to you. I don't think I, I don't get the imposter thing, man, because I fucking out. I've had to work for it all. Do you know what I mean? But sometimes, I mean, like you were saying about asking about the studio, right? On a nice day, on a summer's day or a sunny day, when I'm walking here, back and forward, up and down from the house to uh, to the studio, I still have to pinch myself to think, fucking hell, you know, I mean, this is it's mine now. And like I say, you know, it's not like I haven't worked for anything I've got, but I'm still can't get over how lucky I am, really, because I don't think I'm that talented, really. I'm not doing this as any false modesty bullshit either, because I don't like any of that. But I don't think it's not like I'm a fucking genius or something. You know what I mean? I'm just good at being me. I suppose, you know what I mean? I don't know where I stand against contemporaries or whatever. I've no idea anymore about that. don't care either. So you can, you can only try and be the best um, version of yourself, can't you? You know, but I think uh, I've worked hard for it, but I still a tremendous amount of luck involved as well, I think. Well, I'm very lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be alive, man, to be honest. <laughs> well, it got pretty chaotic back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, you have to count your blessings, really. So I think it's important to recognize what you've done, right? I mean, I recognize your achievements, but don't dwell too much on it, you know, and be grateful, be humble as well. And I think there are not just in music, but in life, I think it's important to learn that. And that if there's anything I'd ever try and instill in my kids, it's that be grateful and be humble what you get in life, all the good things you get in life. And it takes a while for any of us to feel comfortable in our own skin. Yeah. And work out who the heck we are. Took me fucking years, man. Yeah. yeah but there's, there's also that thing of, I mean, so much pressure put on you as a team where it's this kind of spokes 
person spokesman for a generation like you're saying things as an 18 19 20 year old like none of us know anything i could barely string a sentence together mate you know what i mean so it's like the thing i was going to ask you about was being written off and obviously the jam comes to an end and i won't ask the question that you're asked more than any other question right but starting the style council to me again seems like i mean these are all really productive periods but you seem like you have peaks and troughs where that creativity comes more often than it does at other periods right that seemed like certainly the early i mean the amount of singles that were coming out of the style council Mm. was such an amazingly creative period for you again yeah it was exciting it was an exciting time you know because it was kind of like for me it was like wiping the ball clean and sort of starting again just doing whatever come into my head you know pretty much anyway and changing the style of every single was different or try to be a little bit different i don't think we could have done that with the jam i don't think our fans would have gone with that personally or maybe us as a band would have been into that so i wanted that freedom to do that and you know mad things right you know like on the first style council album where I think I only sing on like three songs or four songs or something like that, right? We've got different singers in and some instrumental tracks and it was fucking try everything. Try whatever you've got in your head, just try it and see what happens, you know. Mm. Some of it's successful, some of it not. But I had the opportunity to do that. And through those things you find yourself as well, I think, you know, sometimes if you're lucky. And now I think I'm in a very fortunate position that I can pretty much do what I want musically and like I said before you know I've got anyone breathing down my neck or saying we need a record by next week or album out next month so I can pick and choose when I do that but I think it's took me a long time to earn that a long long time to earn that and I think that's only really come about in the last sort of 10 years or so and uh, if I'd have listened to a lot of other people whether they be company people fans or just people generally I wouldn't necessarily be in this position. You have to stick with your vision of what you think it should be and then hope for the best and you just do that and do that to it as best your ability. So not to say to ignore all advice, but some some of it's shit, man, and you have to really follow your heart and, and, and do what you think's right, you know. There was a thing, you know, a, a few years ago where they were talking about heritage acts, right? This <laughs> is like, oh, I'm not fucking going down that road, mate. Do you know, what I mean? I'm not a fucking heritage axe, whatever that's supposed to mean, like bullshit fucking term. So I had to fight my own little fight in a sense to get through all that stuff, right? And I probably lost a certain amount of audience along the way during this last sort of 10 or so years. The ones who just wanted to wear the jam stuff, right? They've kind of gone now, but I guess they go and see Bruce's band or, you yeah. know, other people or whatever. I don't mind whatever they want to do, whatever makes them happy. But it's been worth it because now I proved myself right that if you just plow through that bullshit and you follow your program of what you think it should be, eventually you'll get there. You will definitely get there. But it's easy to get sidetracked by people who say, oh, maybe you should do this or could do that or, you know, make it like the old record, you know. No, just follow your vision if you've still got a vision. I thought it was really interesting from the Wildwood documentary that was on few weeks back that period of so when you first became a solo artist and i don't know if you see them in these kind of three different things because it seems to me they're all bands really aren't they you know you've always had these yeah. incredible musicians that you've worked with whether it's people like kamel or yolanda steve yeah. white where yeah. we are now with the, the current band right it's yeah. never it's never even the solo stuff's not just paul weller on his own in a way is right. it you know but it really struck me like the movement obviously you played a bit of jam style council stuff because you had to yeah but then didn't when, any, i didn't have any songs but then as soon as you started 
creating your own stuff. Yeah. We parked that for a little while, right up to the solo acoustic tour, and you started embracing it more as a, a full kind of yeah. catalog. Is there an element of you where you would actually, what you'd love to do is just go, I know you did this with Sonic Kicks, but you just love to just play the new stuff. How tired do you feel to that back catalog now where you can't drop a you do something to me or a uh, changing man and things like that? No, I, do you know what? I'm really comfortable with all that now because I've done all that other stuff and I've done proved whatever I need to prove to myself with that anyway. And now, like over COVID, right, for instance, right, during the lockdown when we couldn't play. And there'd be times I think, do you know what? I really fucking miss playing uh, Shout to the Top or and I kind of think back to our, what it sounds like when we used to play it live or whatever song, old song it might be. And I actually kind of uh, thought, no, do you know what? I really love playing them songs, you know? So it's kind of like a, I'm not changing my mind on it, but I'm just kind of more comfortable with it. And I actually, not all of them necessarily, but most of the old tunes we do play, I really enjoy playing them and I, and I kind of miss when we don't play them. I love playing Shout to the Top and I love uh, my ever-changing moves. So there's some things I've been doing for a long time as well, but I really love playing them tunes, man. And uh, that's really what it's about, what, what turns you on yourself, you know. And you still have to have that connection to play the song. You so you get something could, from it, man. You have yeah. to get a buzz, you know. And if you don't really connect with the songs necessarily or lyrically, whatever, but at least you're connecting because you know the crowd are really loving this song and you kind of get off on that. Or I get off on that as well, just that kind of what it does for people and what they, what it means to them. So I love that as well. You know, I kind of grown to probably getting older, I suppose, just I've grown to appreciate that as well, that what these songs mean to people. And, uh, so every time I think oh, I'm not playing fucking Wildwood anymore or Changing Man, you know, I mean, might drop it for a night or two, but then I think no, actually I miss doing that because mm-hmm. I, I miss that vibe, that feeling I get from, uh, how people feel when they hear those certain songs. Yeah. There's also, um, I wrote on my notes, just comfort zone, right? And there was that thing of, there are times where you look at what you do and you push yourself into different directions, which that's that anxiety. Like you're almost creating anxiety for yourself. So I'm yeah. thinking the other aspects, the classical gig with Hannah. Yeah. I'm thinking the Sonic kicks five nights at the roundhouse yeah. with a new album that on the first night hadn't even been released. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was the only one singing it because I'd had a promo copy from the radio company yeah, at the time. I mean, but there are times where you just go, actually, what I'm, what is that that drives you to do those really uncomfortable things? I don't know. I suppose just to shake things up a little bit, you know? But I mean, say like with Sonic Kicks, you know, I just thought, I was so sick of hearing all these bands out or out doing their, playing their classic album from fucking 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. That's what I played my classic album as my new one, right? And we had this, and which is a nice idea. In reality, there was certain times, you know, certain nights I just think it's either really brave or it's really fucking stupid. Because <laughs> it's sort of, it was quite a hard album for people to hear first time anyway, I guess. Not for me, but for most people, I suppose. And um to expect people to, to listen to it like that. I suppose that my head's also sort of back in, like in the seventies, I would say like with the jam, for instance, right? You made a record, you put the record out, but then you go and tour that record, right? And not only do you want to play these new songs to people, but the people want to hear these new songs as well. Well, of course we don't live in that time anymore. People generally speaking like to hear what they're familiar with or what they grew up on or what they love when they were 14 or whatever, which is fair enough. I understand that to some degree, but there's definitely, that is definitely more prevalent now than ever that people like what's what they remember, what's special to them, you know, and least least likely to want to hear the new stuff, you know. But I think that's, for me, that sort of started to change again. And like I said to you, I think it's just a question of just letting people know, 
you know, that's, that's not going to happen. We're not going down that fucking heritage nostalgia bullshit route, right? Where I play some of them old songs, but then it's the new stuff as well. And I think hopefully that my audience is kind of dig it now and they understand that. And then in that case, I'm happy to play some old songs that those people are lying and they go, okay, I love this one and still be able to play my new stuff as well. You know? Yeah. Because I bet most artists with the catalogue you've got would, would do that, wouldn't they? They'd dive in and they'd do, let's call it greatest hits show, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, but- I couldn't be bothered doing that, to be honest with you. I mean, it's pretty greatest hits anyway. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, play a lot of singles. I don't know about greatest hits. I don't know what that entails anymore, but I was looking at our set actually when we, on the last tour and I was thinking, well, actually there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of these tunes with singles as well. But now probably a bit more forgiving, right? So I wouldn't necessarily go and play the whole record. I would temper it by playing lots of different songs as well. But there are some songs which I know people would love to hear, like going underground or whatever, but I don't think I could do them justice anymore. I don't think I could sing them or play them correctly. Okay. Yeah. Because they're a young man's mentality in terms of the song and the delivery uh, or? Some of them, yeah, definitely. And some of them I just couldn't get my head around and wouldn't be able to sing. I wouldn't know how to go about singing them. Okay. Practical thing. It's all about the art of songwriting. How much has that changed since the days of the jam and how you approach the creation of a new record nowadays and, and writing and you've got your, your uh, 2 a.m. spot, but is, is it still your pen and paper? That's when I write them. That's when I mainly write them. Yeah. 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 Pen and paper still. Yeah. Definitely. I'm able to record a lot of stuff on my phone so I can be anywhere and put an idea down. But I always, I'm on the road. I was carrying a notepad, write stuff down. So it's kind of similar. And it's, you know, me strumming aimlessly on a guitar at home, sometimes on a piano. I guess that hasn't changed too much from that point of view. I think probably what's different is. Whereas back in the day, if a song didn't come together quickly in my head, I would probably abandon it, lose interest in it. Whereas now, I'll kind of see it through. Okay. Even if it doesn't go anywhere eventually, I'll try and see it through. Because I've learned that sometimes you start on something and you just think it's never going to work. This You should abandon it, leave it. But then I've seen other songs where I've thought that, and then we have gone through that process. We've gone through that wall. And all of a sudden, this thing that you didn't think was going to work is fucking brilliant and uh, and has worked. So I guess that's patience, I suppose, is it? You know what I mean? Mm. Being a bit more patient, letting things develop. And are you actively going, okay, now, are you always on? Or is it more that you're going, now is the time where I'm going to write and I'll get my head into it? Or is it actually these things are just coming into your head the entire time? Things come into my head all the time, right? But say like now, after completing this record and like another extra eight tracks I don't want to write anymore for a little bit as you can almost turn the tap off well I'm trying to (laughs) yeah I'm trying to because it's so um, it's so consuming when you're writing when you're making a record right it just fills my head fucking 24-7 pretty much Uh, and I just don't want that at the moment I just need to clear everything I've put everything out we're going to put everything out that we've been written this year or whatever so it's completely clean slate and I don't want to think about writing or making records for some time anyway. And in fact, I'm even thinking about making another covers album next. Quite fancy that. Just to turn off that, just give you some headspace. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tunes I want to cover anyway, but I thought, well, it's a good okay. way of me doing that, still being creative and making a record, but I ain't got to think about writing because it's just, 
not overbearing, but it's very uh, consuming. And I think as a dad of a young family, it's that thing of there's so much going on just in that yeah, and work totally, yeah. as well as that. You know, if it become if that becomes all consuming, the work thing, it's very hard to be present in those it's moments really as well. That's right? the two things, man. You know, it's hard to uh, to get the right balance. I mean, I kind of do all right, I think, but it'd be nice to have a period of time when I don't have that. But we're going to go out and play next year. We play some of the new songs, and I'm looking forward just to tour and but not have to think about making a record anyway, not okay. for a bit anyway. And in terms of the writing, a few of the guests talked about, like Steve Pilgrim talked about this, the, what do you call him, the general? General Triggs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> talks about how you write music alongside with the lyrics and this kind of brushstroke thing of layers. And I guess that's easy with things like Pro Tools now, the recording aspect has changed. But I feel like it's always been part of your music where you're looking at layering things up. It's, you know, there are very yeah. few things that are just you and, and a guitar, as much as I love that, don't get me wrong. Yeah. You seem to hear music in a different way in your head to how others would, certainly from what my guests have been saying. Well, because I think that's because I've always, some people I know, some other musicians I know, or guitarist or drummer or whatever, they will listen to something and go, great drums on that, brilliant drums on that, or great guitar riff on that. But I've always listened to a record. I've always listened to the whole thing, the whole piece, right? I love everything. I'm hearing the bass, I'm hearing the, what the drums are doing, the guitar, the vocal, the, I'm hearing the whole thing. I seem, seem trying to see the whole picture, hearing the whole picture. So I think it's probably come from that, you know. Obviously, you've got to have a good song to start up with, if you're lucky. Have a good song to start with, but that immediately, if it's a good song and it ins- and it excites me and it and it inspires me, I will almost immediately hear other things. Well, now the beat could be possibly could have strings on it. Strings would be nice. I could hear a piano there. Whatever it may be, I'm seeing the whole picture, not just listen to my bit. You know, which a lot of musicians do. And they say, no, 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 fuck off. Yes, you do. I know you do. <laughs> and. uh <laughs> but I don't do that, right? I listen to the whole thing. I'm hearing and seeing the whole thing. And have you got better at communicating that in terms of the making of a record? Like how yeah. you then get that made? What's in so, yeah. 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 But again, that just comes through uh, repetition and working and how to make a record. Mm. You know, I worked this out the other day. Incredibly, when Fat Pop came out, that was your 27th studio album release right. out of everything the jam style counts I'm including modernism in that and so yeah you'd expect to get better over time in terms would hope of- so yeah <laughs> do you still get that nerves of when the thing's going to go out into the, the public so you talked about yeah. the, the anxiety of live performance but yeah definitely yeah because you know we all work on it so intensely when I say us me and Charles and any of the band who's here or whatever and we're all buzzing on it obviously we wouldn't be doing it but of course, when that comes to an end, when you've completed it, it's like, oh, fuck, now we've got to play it to, <laughs> play it to everyone people. else. And I don't know what they're going to think of it. I don't know. So you never know. you just got to make, do it the best you can and make it as what you believe in. And then you put it out into the world and a bit like children, really. <laughs> you put all this love and dedication into it and then you have to go, off you go, mate. Yeah, see what happens. Yeah. Dylan Jones talks about from 22 Dreams onward being, he called it your purple patch. I don't know. Why yeah. purple though? I don't know what that expression means or well, where it comes from. <laughs> but I was uh, make it the blue patch or something like that. Well, yeah, because purple, all I can think is purple rinse and it's not, yeah, uh, well, it's possible. Not? <laughs> but he talks about from 22 Dreams, this, I feel like you're an artist that's always done things how you wanted to do them, like very little products yeah. out there that other people told you 
it should be like this, right? But at that point, it really was the handbrake off and you were just going to make a, I think you talked about as well, self-indulgent record of 22 Dreams, yeah? yeah. yeah? But then people just loved it. Yeah. Which is a surprise for you, I guess. Yeah. But Dylan talks about, he said you were due a stinker, was what he said. As in an album that just doesn't work, (laughs) flops or whatever. He's like, because, you know, the hit rate now, since those times of everything that's coming out of here and coming yeah. out of you. Well, you know what though, right? Coming out of, um, the noughties, right? I can't even remember what, what the records were then, but like, uh, as is now. Like illumination and heliocentric, that yeah, type yeah. of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All that, wherever that time that was, I just thought it was just in a rut with, uh, even though they're all great musicians, don't get me wrong, right? But we were in a rut as a band then. And, uh, Something had to happen. Something had to change. We probably could have carried on playing live and doing really well because we were a good live band. But the records, there were some good tunes here and there, but they were all just sounding a bit ploddy and a bit like going through it. To me anyway, I don't know how the others feel about that. So I just thought I can't make any more fucking records like this. You know, something's got to change here. And then I had a year off in which I made 22 Dreams, a year off from touring, I think anyway. So there wasn't really like a core band and that was good really for me because it meant I got different folk in, different people in. There was no preconception of what we're going to do and how this song goes and blah, blah, blah. And it, it just all unfolded as we went along. You know, the more we made, the more it became apparent how else we, where else we could go with it. So that was a very pivotal moment for me really in terms of making records how to make a record, how you go about it. Almost like as I felt back at that start of the style council, you know, where we didn't have a band then, got different people in and that changes things, you know, they, everyone brings something else different to it. But it was a very, uh, an important album, 22 Dreams. It was a great record, I think as well, but it's an important record as well because it just showed that there, there ain't really any rules. There is no rules. You just make up as you go along as you, as we all do in life anyway. But there's something sometimes really beautiful about that and unexpected that happens as well, you know. So that was important, that. And I think it's that kind of outlook's probably lasted, has endured since, I think, anyway. And it felt, I mean, I love that album. It feels like that album is Black Barn. Yeah. That is, you know, it's very soul. You get Black Barn through a year. Yeah. The surrounding areas flood through on the album, even to the point that you're hearing the, the cockerel in the garden, that yeah, type of thing. Cocks, yeah. yeah. Doors open, all that. And that leads into lots of experimentation. Although for, to me, you're always, you were always experimenting. You think about the style council, so much of that as well. Production techniques all the way through, but using the studio as a tool mm. through those albums, like Wake Up the Nation, Sonic Kicks and stuff as well. Yeah. And I guess you're getting, you know, shifting away from analog, moving into digital makes some of that stuff a little easier. Yeah. Well, we had to really, to be honest. I think the last time we used uh, multi-track was on uh, when we were starting as is now, and we got a few days in, and then we run out of tape, and we, we couldn't buy any. <laughs> we couldn't get it because Ampex went under, so we were fucked. And um, <laughs> so somebody had to quickly learn the Pro Tools. So, yeah, so Charlie yeah, had to send Charlie to off to a university and <laughs> and learn about Pro Tools. Yeah, but. Um, yeah. And even now, when you look at albums like, um, on Sunset and Fat Pop, that kind of use of the studio is such an important thing as well. Yeah. But a lot of on Sunset is, is done live as well. Less so on, on 22 Dreams and the other ones after that. But Sunset was pretty much live, really. A lot of live takes and then embellish them, adding strings and whatever. Let me ask you about the current band before we wrap up. Yeah. So st- I say current band. Steve Craddock has been with you for 30 years now. Yeah. 
30 years, yeah. That's mad, isn't it? Bonkers, yeah. I remember seeing, I mean, the first gig I saw you guys was been the Paul Arts Centre, 92. Yeah. The first album, first solo album had just come out and the Ocean Colour Scene supported. Yeah. When you look at the footage now, I mean, Steve Craddock looks like, what is he, like 15, 16? <laughs> picture of him now, you'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, it's so mad. Yeah, that's right. They played two shows. We just got back from the States then, that shows you're talking about, I'm pretty sure anyway. And uh, we did that and we did uh, Portsmouth, I think, as well. Yeah, Gordon, you asked me about the band. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible person and an incredible musician. And the reason why we're still playing together, I think anyway, is because we're both able to, to adapt and to see that whatever you do today, I might not want tomorrow. I might want something else. So you have to be a little bit adaptable and then be able to go along with that kind of mode of thinking as well, which not all musicians are happy with. Mm. One of the things I really love is, is how open you are to anybody being part of this setup if they've got talent, if they're good. Yeah. And you think like Tom Hill, who started here as making it, you know, as a tea boy, making the cups of tea, fixing the roof, I think, from what I remember. Um, you know, Ben Gordelia, who yeah. is such a talent, real talent. Yeah. These young lads, and even Jake Fletcher, who's, you know, the most recent member, you know, joining the band, who I think I'm right in saying, like, had to learn about 30 songs in about 24 hours and yeah. manage it, right? Age is not a barrier to talent. You've always been like that. With you know, Steve White, when he joined the Star Council, was like 16. Yeah. That doesn't matter to you. Yeah. The age thing. Yeah, but also I guess it's that thing of any of them can spark creativity, can spark the sharing of ideas, inspiration within you, regardless of whether, yeah. whether it's a T-boy or whatever. Yeah. As long as they're able to rise to uh, what I'm trying to get to. Is that Could that be daunting for some people that, that they just couldn't well, no, get out Well, no, it's just some you know? people... Um, might not want to do that mm. or don't know how to do that and that's fine as well you know but if you can if you can adapt like I said like with Craddock then we'll have a future you know Steve Pilgrim's another one and his most recent album you worked on together Beautiful Blue so yeah. not only is an incredible drummer in the band but this amazing singer songwriter yeah, yeah, and a yeah, huge yeah. talent in his own right yeah. as well so yeah you're always surrounding yourself with just such special talented people uh, I won't go that far <laughs> This is I the most uncomfortable think, you've been I in this conversation. Think I bring out the best in them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, they are clearly learning. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah, we are all still learning, man. You never stop learning. Yeah, isn't that a brilliant thing? Like you're all yeah. kind of growing together and developing together and sharing ideas. Since that last, we did a tour recently, right, in Europe, uh, Southern Europe, a few months ago, and all of us, me included, I just think we all said it's the best tour we've ever done. Me included, regardless of whatever. Whatever I've done in my last 40, 40 odd years, right? It was just the best tour ever, man. And the best band I've ever played with. We were all at the top of our game. I don't know how long those things last for, but we were all at the top of our game. And there's so much communication between us and the audience as well. And it was just incredible. You think after all that time, you're still hitting a personal best, you know? And that's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah that doesn't happen. It doesn't always happen, no, not at all. No. No, normally it goes the other way. Yeah. And would you, you'd know when it, you'd be telling yourself that if it, if the, if it, it peaked well, and was kind of going the other way, was it? If it was a big it? drag to go out on stage every night, then you know it's time to turn it in or realise that you were just doing it for the money or whatever. But if every night you've got to play like it's your last show or to prove your metal, then that's a different story. Then you've got something going on. One thing I should have asked you was about the nickname. So I mentioned the general, Steve Craddock's Chopper. Is this a Weller thing or a Woking thing? So I feel like the, the sense of humour is as much the kind of the locality, because Tufty's a bit like this as well, with this kind of piss-taking mentality. Yeah. 
Is that just is that from your family, or is it like all oh, everybody's like that? All your mates, we always give each don't we all give each other? Don't you? I've got funny little names for your kids. Yes, that's I, true. Yeah, I still call my son who's thirty five. Still call him his baby names and silly little nicknames. <laughs> you nearly said what it was, then you realised that it's no. like yeah. <laughs> um, you won't thank you for that. Yeah, but um, they've got names for me probably as well. Some are very rude. I'm not going to repeat on the show. <laughs> At the end of each podcast on this series, I've asked people to pick a Paul Weller song. Right, they're allowed one for the rest of their life. It can be the jam, the star cards, or solo. Is how I've phrased it. Okay. So the one that's come out top is a song that you initially. I think it was maybe written as a poem. You initially scrunched it up and put it in the bin down at the tube station at midnight. You didn't think that was any good and you thought you'd get rid of it, right? Yeah, I had a little sort of hissy fit with Vic Smith and I was like, fuck it, rubbish. <laughs> Chucked it in the bin and all that. And Vic, bless his art, he said, no, this is good. You should carry on working on this. We've got to see it through. That's the best way you get, you know, you've got a good producer, someone who encourages you as well. Luckily, we did that. Same with English Rose. I want, didn't want to do that. And it was only Vic who sort of taught me around and... Was that because it was uncomfortable, like putting your heart on your sleeve, showing yourself as a romantic? Yeah, in, in I that so, yeah. Scenario. A bit of that, I guess, yeah, definitely. John Wilson talks about how this ability to create a song that is very visual. And actually, we've not talked about the visuals angle of albums, but the visuals have always been something really important, not just for songwriting, but I mean like the visual element of what you do is so important. The cover of an album mm. and the thought that goes into every single detail of that. Yeah. Back to, I guess, the mod thing, the detail, back to the Beatles, yeah. all those kind of things you were growing up on. Yeah. But that's all really important as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I'm only still thinking in 12 by 12 vinyl terms. Yeah, not the little tiny thing on an MP3 <laughs> Spotify. Right? Thing, no. Or even a CD, to be honest with you. So it's really important to me, but only that vinyl is important, really regardless of whatever you sell or don't sell these days. That is the art form for me anyway. Okay. And yeah, John Wilson talks about the visual element of so many of these songs. The fact yeah. that, you know, you paint a beautiful picture and you can, we, we're transported there. We're transported onto the tube with a takeaway curry. That's a real knack. That isn't something you can learn or you, or you can teach I rather. I wasn't fucking taught it, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So where does that come from then? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I suppose films, TV... A lot of those songs at that time when you're talking about were kind of like little sort of, in my mind, were little sort of play for today type things. You know? It's like the Mike Lee type thing. Yeah, I kind of should see them as like little program or something, little film. I suppose from that, I don't know. Definitely, definitely not from school. There wasn't the English teacher who inspired me, Mr. Like, you know, everything at all. None of that. I don't know. I suppose people like Ray Davis, John and Paul, obviously, they're quite, Ray's songs were very, like little mini, plays in a way weren't there a lot of them mm. anyway little f maybe people like that you know but you were you weren't like reaching for the thesaurus to look up words and things or I wouldn't even be able to spell it <laughs> I'm not sure I, I didn't even know what the fuck it was until like, we've got one here now <laughs> I have no idea I didn't go anywhere near anything like that I don't know I honestly don't know and I don't care either because I know it's just something I can do and I'm not happy with that. Yeah, I guess there's that danger if you dig into it too deeply, the magic disappears. And yeah, starts, I mean, it's right? like, you know, how did you come to write that? I mean, I don't know. I just did. Close second was Wildwood. Yeah. And again, a song that is connected with, I mean, you talked about it being almost kind of taken on as a modern folk song in a way of like, yeah. and I loved it in the documentary, you're talking about like hearing it back from the audience singing it and stuff. Yeah. It's such a special, special song. Do you know when you're writing something that actually I'm onto, so where, where do you get that bit where you're like, I'm onto something here, this is going to be something different? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Certain songs, definitely. Wildwood would, would have been one. Yeah. Because we also used to play that live before it's even recorded, right? Even before 
maybe before it was even demoed, I think, we played that live for a little bit. Might have been in a different sort of style or something. I think it was electric guitar at times or something. Yeah, yeah, it could have been, yeah. It wasn't acoustic as it turned out on the record anyway. But we had been playing that and I thought the reaction was really good. Even though people hadn't heard it before, first time they've heard it. But the reaction was really good to it. But I think, you know, I just thought melodically, I thought it was really beautiful. And I did think it was special just finding the right vehicle for it, really. You talked about that with Gravity, actually, as a song where you'd have that for a while and then you wrote an album around it. Sometimes yeah. the, you're thinking in that way of like, this doesn't fit anywhere. I've got to find a home for things. I love Gravity so much, right? As a song, I thought it was so beautiful. And I don't say that in an arrogant term. I mean, just, I thought it was genuinely thought it was a great song, but I could never put on an album, any of the albums around that time. It just wouldn't fit. You know, it just seems so at odds with the rest of it. So I thought, well, Maybe try and write an album that's kind of similar to that, you know, and then it would have a home for it, a find a place for it, which is what I did with True Meanings, you know, which is another record I really love as well. Oh, it's a great record, yeah. but also like very few of those songs in the set list these days because yeah. it's a different setup in terms of you have to step away from the yeah. band. Or, you know. Well, we were doing it, right? We, a couple of years ago, when we first started back after uh, COVID lockdown and all that, we had the two-hour set we were doing anyway, but then we had this other which we only did it on a couple of shows, I think, but we had an acoustic set, right, which was about half an hour long. It was just getting too long and sprawling. And, uh, but we were doing more of the songs, true meaning songs in that little set, but we couldn't make it work. And I just felt like it was fucking going on forever. Do you know what I mean? The set was like two and a half, nearly three hours or something. You Bruce Springsteen all of a sudden, yeah, right? it was too much. <laughs> I, I think there's something to be said. You know, I think two hours is, a, is long enough, I personally think, anyway. I find the same with films these days. They're all like three and hours, three and a half hours. And I think that's, I know, I really want to see the new Scorsese, but it's like, you know, I'm not going to see it in the cinema three and a half hours. Christ, take a week out or something. But, um, but what was wrong with an hour and a half? I thought that was, that was good. You could say we need to say, what's wrong with three minutes or three and a half minutes? You know, Ray Davis made it work for him all right, man. Soul Council, we have a tie with You're the Best Thing in My Ever Changing Mood, songs which you have revisited in recent years as well. From my point of view, I wanted to ask you about a couple of songs quickly before we go, before we wrap up, that have meant an awful lot to me. And actually, the more recent songs. So Village was a song that I really love off of On Sunset. And a song, again, I think it feels like it's it's you feeling comfortable in your skin, I guess. you try. I, I try not to read too much into lyrics because I guess it's like, you know, yes, it's you writing, but they're not all autobiographical. No, not at right? all. no. There's always elements of me in them. Well, not always, but a lot of time there's elements of me in it. And there's elements of my own experiences that are in the songs. But beyond that, I visualize or invent the rest. Going back to that, the visualization of musical words. I just saw this, saw this guy just striding down the, probably in Greenwich Village, that's probably where the title comes from. I don't know why Greenwich Village, I've not spent time there anywhere. <laughs> but it could be anywhere, right? Someone could be Portobello Road. Someone just striding down the road, sun shining in, it's a great day. I've got no worries. Fuck everything, man. I'm just feeling good. And, uh, I love that image. And uh, um, so that's where that song comes from. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But I'm not saying it isn't connected with the fact that I feel, definitely feel comfortable in my skin as well. But you know what? And, and I really don't want to go on about this because it's so boring. But, but I think also when I stopped drinking, when I got sober, I immediately felt more comfortable in myself. And, you know, people say booze releases your demons, right? I don't know if a lot of the demons are actually in the bottle because a lot of the things I used to worry about or think about when I was drinking, I stopped like that. They vanished and it's just like they weren't important and I don't even think about them anymore. So why am I telling you this? Because that's what made me realise anyway, from that time especially, 
I've just felt immediately more comfortable in myself, really. You know, you know obviously, that's old, getting older and old age as well does that, if you're lucky, I suppose. But I think it's something tied in with that as well, you know. As you say that, that idea of like the hard reset on things is something that would appear that you're good at. Like the, you, when you say like, you know, the Into 22 Dreams, you made a hard stop on that. Obviously the jam, a hard stop on that. Mm. With the drink as well, it's like a hard stop on that. These mm. things don't peter on. If you make a decision, you make a decision, you cut stuff off. Yeah. You're not tempted to revisit things, whether it's the drink, whether it's the band, those no. types of things, right? You just go forward. Yeah. But I think also that's kind of, uh, there's something internal with me that tells me to do that. I mean, obviously with the jam, I, I've made my mind up, but that was, that was a much tougher decision. But when I stopped drinking, it was almost like my body just said, you finished now, had your time, you've done. And that was it. And, uh, I'm not saying it was that easy, but that's what spurred me on. The fact that there was this kind of internal voice, whatever you want to call that. Mm. But normally, yeah, if I make your mind up, that's it, really. Yeah, you don't. Can't okay. really change me too much from that. One other song to ask you about, which had a real connection with me as well, was a song called Glad Times, which you've started playing live again. It takes a while for some of these songs to yeah. get into the set, feel like they can be part of the set, maybe. I don't know what the yeah. decision-making is. But that, again, was such a special song and connected in so many ways that these songs do. You hope to find yeah. an audience for what you're saying, right? But yeah. uh, talk, talk to me about because that was a co-write. It was, yeah, with um, with uh, Tom and Amp from White Label. And we've done stuff before together. We did a couple of songs together. So it was a backing track they sent me. It took me like at least probably two or three years to get the song together on top of it, you know. Kind of thought I really believed in the backing track and what they would, you know, what it sounded like. But I just couldn't find the right vehicle for it. See, that's the sort of thing I'm saying. They're the things that I would now keep pursuing, right? Even if I can't get it at the time, I think. I'm not going to totally disown that or ditch it or whatever. I'll keep chipping away. And so back in the day, you'd, back you'd have it. killed it off and gone, it's not working. lost it, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And it was worth doing because I, I think it's a good song it's be, and it's lovely to play live as well. But I suppose when I'm writing, not always, but I'm writing a lot of things that we can all relate to because we're all, we're all going for the same things as well, you know, yeah. with our relationships, with our, am I a good person? Am I a good father? Am I a good partner? You know, whatever it may be. We're all feeling those things, aren't we? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Unless you're a dickhead or something. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a list of those. It's good to, um, <laughs> but it's, it's good to acknowledge those things, I think. And, uh, and I think it's also good for people to hear it in a song. And I'm saying this as me as a punter as well. It's good to hear those things in a song because you think, ah, oh, other people feel like that as well. It's not just me then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Other is people it? are questioning themselves. So it's important to people let people know that. Well, yeah, when you when you hear it from somebody who you, you know, the perception is they got a great life and a great career and all this thing, well, and you, you've got both of them two things, yeah, but, yeah. But you forget that actually you're a human being, Paul, yeah. and the, you know, there's there's normal things in your life that will be going on that we're all those types of things, oh, yeah. chaos and yeah. upset and hurt and pain, yeah. all those things that of make course. us human beings, right? Of course, yeah. You forget that, don't you? When you're reading, yeah. you know, when I'm reading Mojo magazine and reading about the next yeah. album, that's not, we don't think about those things. You, they, no, people true. put you on a pedestal in a way, I guess, as yeah. well, don't they? No, absolutely. Yeah. And that is right. I mean, I don't think like that, but that's only because I've had this experience. So when I look at other people like Macca or whatever, I know that he's been through whatever he's been through, same as what, you know, we all have all experience, yeah. losses, pain, joy, grief, happiness, you know, whatever it may be. One thing you said there about glad times and this, 
these lots of versions, whether they're in your head or you're recording and stuff. Is there a future where we will get these big box sets like you've had with the Beatles recently and there's you know, version 20 of, um, of Penny Lane? What's your view on that? I mean, obviously as a fan, as a collector, you're buying that stuff. Some of it, yeah. Some of it goes too far, man. I remember buying this bootleg years ago in Japan or America or something and it had like a, you know, 12 different takes of strawberry fields. But one had like a tambourine on and one didn't. It's just <laughs> right, like, right. I don't <laughs> fucking care about that. Do you know what I mean? And to be honest with you, there's a few occasions where this might differ, but generally speaking, I don't want to know how the magic was made. I'm quite happy to hear the end product, right? It's kind of interesting to hear Yellow Submarine, that version recently with John singing it. It was a totally different song, mm. it? quite down. And so that was interesting, but that was all, you know what I mean? I kind of, I don't need to know where it was created or how it was created necessarily. I just, just listened to the beautiful finished thing, man. That's the important thing for me, you know? Yeah. And every song for you, there are two things which have come up a lot on the podcast. One was serve the song. And that's a, I don't know if that's a you phrase or something that's come from somewhere else. Danny Thompson. Danny Thompson. Oh man, he was yeah. such a lovely fellow on the podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. great. What a guy. So, so, so what does that mean? Serve the song. It means put your fucking ego outside or leave it in the car or whatever and then come in and listen to this tune and listen to what the person's trying to put over and what they're trying to uh, reflect within this music. And that's what it means. Okay. And go, yeah, I'm the fucking best play, bass player in the world and, you know, that was just, I'm going to do it. And it's not about. Those people don't last long in your company. No. The- Some have lasted longer than they should have done. <laughs> I shall name, not name names. No. <laughs> okay. The other thing that's come up is how every song's important for you, regardless of whether it's a B-side, a deluxe, a song that sits on an album, a single. When you mean, when we're making it. Yeah. Yeah. They might not be as, as important after we've finished it. But you're not somebody who's pumping out crap, you know, do you know what I mean? There's a quality it's threshold where you... I wouldn't try it. I mean, I put out crap, but not intentionally. It's just, you know, didn't really see it at the time, to be honest, you know mm. what I mean? But I wouldn't purposely put out a piece of shit. I'll just think, oh, that would do spun out. You know what I mean? I'm not really into that. There's too much at stake. Final question. So purpose of this podcast, Paul, that we created yeah. during lockdown as a daft little idea. Thought it maybe last like 20 episodes, talk to some fans. What are you on now? I'm wondering what. This is 180, this is. Incredible. <laughs> I don't even know that many people. <laughs> I mean, there have been this many connections. You know, it started off as let's chat to some fans, but we've had, you know, the musicians, we've had people that you've collaborated with, and it feels like the collaboration is more something you're comfortable with doing more and more of that kind of stuff these days, right? Mm. Hugely talented people, whether they're journalists and people like Pat Gilbert and Pete Perfides, whether John Wilson, authors, all these people that have told this story over the past three years now, ridiculously. But the reason I created it was because back in the day when I was a radio presenter, I gave up and I had one big regret, which was never to get an interview with yourself. Gary Crowley just rang up the home phone number and got an interview with you for the fanzine back in the day, right? (laughs) That's how easy it was. I was still living at home then. So I created a podcast to make it happen. And I said to every guest, you know, what should I ask Paul? And every single one of them kind of went, he's down to earth. He's, you know, he's not lost in showbiz, you know, all these kind of things. But ultimately they kind of said, you know, ask him what you want to ask him and he'll be open to it. I feel like interviews has not always been something that you've enjoyed, but you've, mm, it feels yeah. like, it feels like now you're more comfortable talking about some of these things. Why? Cause I'm more comfortable as a person. That's all to be honest. And, uh, I don't feel like I'm sort of um, fighting against the press or the, do you know what I mean? And it was kind of like, it was, I mean, that's because I had very bad experiences when I was younger. I mean, we first started off, I mean, got slagged off a lot, man. You know, I mean, like our second record, our second album, you know, was like 
we were sort of finished, really. Do you know what I mean? There's quite a lot to take on when you're 19. <laughs> Your life's over at 19. So I always thought there was kind of like, you know, us against them vibe, you know, and I don't feel that now. I don't fucking care enough to do it. But it isn't like that anyway. And also the nature of music journalism has changed entirely, I think, as well in the last sort of 10, 15 years. In what way? I don't think there's so many people with an agenda anymore. I think people are the money shit, right? So people who do it generally are people who really love doing it, right? And there's some great writers now. And I think all the separating the wheat from the chaff or whatever, they've all gone off and, you know, whatever they do, holiday programs or whatever they get up to. But so I think there's only like genuinely uh, people who love music like Pete, like Pete Felix and Pat and all those cats, right? So I don't think you get people come along to interview you with this kind of nasty hidden agenda, which used to get the enemy or whatever. It's not like that. So you can all be more open and you can be talking on a different level. But I think it's because, uh, well, the arse has fallen out of, uh, music magazines, right? Fortunately, there's still Uncut and Mojo and Shindig and there's still a few going, luckily. But I think that I feel they're more dedicated to just, uh, serving the music. That's a serving the song thing, the, the, the journalists yeah. in music magazine so. equivalent, right? But yeah. very different to back in the day. about what you really love when you want to put across to people. Don't write about what you don't like. Fuck it. Just ignore it. You know what I mean? This has been such a joy. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me down here. Yeah? You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for um, doing whatever you've been doing for the last three years. <laughs> and I wish you success in your new career. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is no idea for series two. So this is the end. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Man. And with that, off he goes to put the kettle on. What can I say? My thanks once again to Paul Weller for joining me on the podcast. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> and most of all, thank you for the music. Thank you for the live gigs. Thank you for the albums, the singles, everything that's gone into my head and my heart over the past 30 plus years. Thank you to you for listening, for supporting the podcast, whether it's recently you've discovered it, whether it's from day one and you've been there across the whole journey. I do appreciate it. If you've come to any of the live shows, if you've ever bought a virtual coffee, if you've helped with some of the transcripts, especially to Ian Trainer, then thank you. I should also give a massive shout out to Keely Shaw as well. Not only a great friend, but a fabulous designer who created all of the artwork for Desperately Seeking Paul. Such an important part of our visual identity and being discovered on all those podcast platforms. So thank you, Keely. Thanks to every single one of my 180 plus guests who have joined me on the podcast series as well. Look, if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please do share on your social media channels. You can get in touch on Twitter or X at at WellerFanPod or on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You can find the entire archive of conversations, podcasts on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, do leave a comment in some of the show notes. Do drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And if you've enjoyed any part of this series and you fancy supporting financially, then you can head into my store. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com forward slash store. You can find official merchandise in there. Right now, we have some incredible limited edition posters that are raising money for the incredible charity Help Musicians. Just head into the store there. A wonderful, beautiful design by Matt at Vinyl Soul. I'll sign each and every one of those as well. They are limited edition, so please do head into the store, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. 
a couple of other thank yous before I go. Once again, thanks to my brilliant wife, Kate, and my fabulous kids, Henry and Freddie. I do realize that I am a really very, very lucky guy to have such a brilliant, brilliant family. I want to also mention my mum as well, because something Paul was talking about, about John Weller really struck home with me. I remember I'd have been, what, age 14, 15, a parents' school evening. And my mum going along and the form tutor saying that Dan's got this ridiculous idea where he wants to be a radio presenter and he really needs to think about his career like a proper job. And my mum just kind of went, well, and? What's wrong with that? It is a job. People do it. There's no reason why he can't. And that really struck me when Paul was talking about John and how encouraging he was that having that behind you is such an important thing. As it's the final episode, I also wanted to mention my grandparents, Bob and Pat Hartgrove, who are both no longer with us now, sadly. But I mentioned that radio career, that dream at the beginning of this podcast, and I've done it on every episode. And they were always so massively supportive of everything that I did on the radio. My nan brilliantly became a radio star on some of the radio shows that I did as well known as Nana and Grandad to my listeners on the radio. They were just brilliant. But they were so massively supportive of me and my journey, my career in radio, to the point that my granddad, who was still alive when this podcast started, started listening on his Alexa speaker in the corner. And even started then listening to Paul Weller's music as well, <laughs> digging the tunes. So whilst I'm sad that he couldn't enjoy the entire journey he passed away last year, I know that he's here in spirit. So if I'm going to dedicate this episode to anybody, it would be to Pat and Bob. As far as what's next, who knows? Mr. Weller himself said that we should turn this into a book. There was a very big clue in the last episode of the podcast to what could happen next. So you might want to listen back. And no, it's not that I got an extras part on Blitz with Paul Weller and Steve McQueen. I have a couple of ideas for 2024 for the odd special edition, perhaps. But for now, that's it. My thanks once again to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.